What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Will, episode 447. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we are winding the clock back to the world of pre-code for pre-code part two with Amanda, a.k.a. Simp for the Devil, who was our illustrious guest on the first pre-code Hollywood episode. But Amanda, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Oh, thanks so much for having me on again, James. Yeah, this is, I've been really excited about this one. I don't know why. I've never been able to properly put this into words, but for whatever reason, early 30s movies like make me high and nostalgic mm-hmm. and giddy for for movies just all around and but i don't know why but pre-code movies just push my buttons in a way that other movies do not and thankfully you're like a diehard fanatic on the topic <laughs> and i am yes um, my parents are partially to blame uh, with all the universal horror movies but uh, essentially it's just this treasure trove of just endless amounts of movies from that era every single genre is represented and it just does something that's also incredibly modern so it's this great way to kind of take this this time capsule if you will to, to the 30s but it does it with a flavor that we're kind of familiar with just Absolutely. how bold they are yeah well people always think oh if you watch a movie from the 30s that it's going to be kind of you know squeaky clean and wholesome mm-hmm. and family friendly and there are those movies and then there's those movies that are not. And we're going to be talking about right. some of those <laughs> today. <'cause> these <laughs> the fun movies, ones, yeah, yes. They, these get a very dark, strange, forbidden territory. But some of the greatest filmmakers of all time also work in this period. And it's mm-hmm. this great period where you're making the transition from silence to sound. And just so many things were happening and changing all at once. And obviously, it's the height of the Great Depression. But before we mm-hmm. get to all that good stuff... You're mostly known on social media to your close friends as a hardcore gaming fanatic. Yeah. So tell me what you've been up to in the world of gaming as of late. Well, what I've been up to is um, preparing for this episode. I've had my uh, copy of Kingdom Hearts 3 still wrapped in plastic. No way. I played the first one quite a bit, but uh, what's the word on the third one? Uh, You know what? I've kind of stayed, aside from talking to a few friends of mine who are a diehard Kingdom Hearts fan, like like if you were ever to do an episode on Kingdom Hearts, I would would recommend them to you. Um, It'd be an easy one to do because it's all Disney cartoons. You could easily like fold it in with a wrong real episode. Yes. And then a nice mix of uh, that dose of like the Final Fantasy universe 
which is which is ginormous. Yeah. Um, every game is just so different from the the previous one. Um, but uh, in terms of Kingdom Hearts, I've heard a lot of good things, but I don't know if it's because uh, you know they're they're obviously going to be biased. They loved the the series already. I mean, I love the first two, um, the first one and the second one on the PlayStation Two. But gosh, at this point, the last one came out I think in like two thousand and five. Yeah, because I played the first one. Yeah, like early two thousands. Memory serves correctly, me and had it on the PS Two yeah. and played it for a couple of weeks, just ate yeah. it up. But yeah. I never. I've never gone back and revisited it. How, how well does it hold up now? Well, um, have from watching just videos online, and uh, I'm going to crack into it tomorrow. I'll probably play it on my on my PlayStation Vita. The remote play that it offers, I heard, was good while uh, the Super Bowl's on. Um, <laughs> um, I've the gameplay looks great. It looks like what I want from the the first two in the series because there's so much. Or rather, there's so many games that are not a part of the main series that kind of extend off from it. Like one is essentially like a card battling game, which I just gotcha. I just couldn't get into. I'm, yeah, I'm, you I, don't, know. I don't do Hearthstone or any of the card games. Yeah. I know some people love like the Magic the Gathering format and like Kriparian, yes. who used to be like this hardcore WoW and Diablo guy. He's been playing Hearthstone for like eight straight years. I'm like... How can you play the same fucking game for so long that he just loves it? I just, yeah, there's a lot of depth. I think if I ever got into something like that, that'd probably be all I would do. And I'd rather just kind of, you know, touch a little bit of everything. I like the variety. Um, but um, as far as what I've seen with the world, it looks like there's less worlds to explore in this Kingdom Hearts than the previous ones. And I remember in the second one, I loved, I think my favorite one was the the Steamboat Willy World. So it was an oh, entire nice. black and white. It was very cool. Um, and all the characters kind of moved around in that 20, uh, 20s type of style, the way that they just kind of like bobble and everything. Speaking um, of which, did you play Cuphead last year? I did. That game is ridiculously yeah, hard, but it's people, beautiful. Oh yeah, but for people who don't know, Cuphead was this badass game. You play solo or two-player and they used all like the Fleischer Brothers animation from the yes. 30s as a jumping off point so all the boss fights look like something from like a Popeye cartoon it was oh, yeah. really hard but if you have a wingman you can kind of share in the suffering together and you can res each other in mid combat and so yes. my little brothers and I played a shit load of Cuphead but I love seeing the world of gaming and old school animation colliding so whether it's Kingdom Hearts or Cuphead it's just cool to see that people are still going back and taking inspiration from that really rich period of animation there's so much material there. I, I mean, I think, it, especially like you said, the, the Flesher uh, cartoons that look that Cuphead has, it looks like a long lost cartoon that Absolutely. he did that we, that we never saw. Um, and it's interesting because it's introducing the world of gaming, I guess, to that style that they're not familiar with. So that's something I really loved about it. I hope with the success they do another one. Uh, I think um, I think the Cuphead 2 is, un, is underway. So. Yeah. Um, but in terms of Kingdom Hearts 3, I was hoping for something a little different, you know, because you do travel to all these different planets and you on, and uh, you get to experience these individual Disney worlds. And there was a rumor that there now since Disney owns just about everything, that there might be Marvel worlds and Star Wars worlds and all that type of stuff. They don't own wrong really yet, but I am up for sale <laughs> yeah. anytime they want me. <laughs> yeah. So I was hoping a little bit for that, but I was I, I, it's not there, unfortunately. But um, I'm still excited, you know, especially with the, the Toy Story planet and, and the fourth one. Maybe there'll be some sort of Easter egg there. Now, I heard a rumor that you're going to be making an appearance on one of our friends slash competitors in the podcasting world. What are you preparing <laughs> for on that front? Or have you already appeared? Um, I already prepared. Um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know if I should spoil what it is, but it's, oh, gotcha. it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if Martin wants me to do that. Um, but, um, I did enjoy doing it and I, cause I also do love, uh, I guess I'll kind of give a spoiler. I do love a uh, studio Ghibli. So gotcha. perfect. Excellent. Yeah. yeah he came yeah, on Ron real year and a half ago to do Hayao Miyazaki. And I could tell that Kessler was a true hardcore fanatic for all things studio Ghibli. Wonderful stuff. They're my favorite animation studio right now. As much as I love Pixar, I feel like they're the 
only one currently that we all can recognize that that actually are able to to have this energy and this spirit behind them. A lot of them nowadays just feel a little soulless to me. I guess minus uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I mean, which I Lego loved. Movie Two, the second part was unbridled, unimaginable, just shrieking, shrill hell. I fucking so hated it. And I love the first one. The first one I saw mm-hmm. three times. I thought it was just so creative, so inventive, so much fun, so humorous, so much heart. Yeah. And I just got out of seeing How to Train Your Dragon 3 in an advanced screening. I'm a was big fan good? of the first one, less so of the second. I would say this third one's kind of somewhere in the middle, but I have to agree when it comes to big budget, beautiful, high production value animation, but also creativity, imagination, heart, soul, etc. It's hard mm-hmm. to fuck with Studio Ghibli. They, they kind of stand in a class of their own. They do. Um, I don't know. Have you seen Mirai yet? I'm going to be trying to see that this week. Um, I'm embarrassed I know to... Let me know what that is. What's, what's Mirai? Well, I was kind of going through all of the uh, Oscar nominations as, as much as I kind of, you know, dislike the Oscars 50% of the time. I still pay attention to them just for the, the history behind what they offer, how long they've been around. And, you know, generally speaking, a lot of the movies they they, uh, they dominate are, are worth taking a look at. And uh, Mirai was one of the animated films I haven't seen. And uh, I think it's uh, Hoshada. I might be saying his name wrong. I know he did Summer Wars and The Wolf Children. Okay. Um, yeah, and I found a place uh, in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, that is going to have it, so I'm excited to see it. That'll make Marcus Penn very happy to hear yeah. that you're giving some love to Amherst. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not far away from them, so yeah. Oh, how far away from Amherst are you? Oh, about an hour. Gotcha. Um, now, do you pronounce I, yeah. the H or not? I do not pronounce the H. I yeah. call it Amherst, yeah. Yeah, nice. Excellent. Yeah, some weird <laughs> names in Massachusetts. <laughs> now, are you you lived your whole life in Massachusetts? Yes. And um, how, typical, well, how typical is your accent for your region? <laughs> Um, I think when uh, when I say to people online that I'm Massachusetts, they expect the the Bostonian accent. But uh, my my parents and most of my family, uh, I mean, immigrated to the U.S. Oh, well, not my parents. My grandparents immigrated to the U.S. So into New York, into Manhattan, and I think they kind of just stretched out into Jersey and Connecticut. And my father was like the first person to be like, "There's a job in Massachusetts, so I'm moving up there." Gotcha. So I kind of I think have more of that Connecticut uh, accent as opposed to the Boston one. And and growing up, I was about like three hours from Boston. It was okay. Great. Yeah basically on the line kind of uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. If you're getting liquored up, can you whip out a really strong Boston accent? Like, can you go like full Bill Burr if you wish to? <laughs> I would know. I can't, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like Boston. I don't love it, but I do like it. It's just not something that's been a big part of my life from from where I am. I'm more interested in, uh, in hopping the train from New Haven and going to Grand Central. Okay, very cool. Excellent. Yeah. Well, yeah. I won't argue with that. Well, today, the topic at hand, as we mentioned before, is pre-code Hollywood. And if you haven't heard the f- uh, first pre-code, that was wrong real episode 412 called The Glories of Pre-Code Hollywood. If you Google it, it'll come right up. And there we tackled like I'm No Angel and Gold Diggers of 1933, uh, Redheaded Woman, The Divorcee, and The Bitter Tea of General Yen. But we got some really juicy ones today because we're going to be dipping our toes into the world of Ernst Lubitsch. Or I, was, I never know if it's Ernst Lubitsch or Lubitsch. I always fuck up his I name. I say Lubitsch. I, I, don't, I hope that's right. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't correct you either way. Yeah. <laughs> and we also are retackling William Wellman, but also one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, Joseph von Sternberg. But before we get into all those goodies, Amanda, why don't you help, um, for people out there who aren't, aren't necessarily early 30s buffs, give us an idea of what the Hollywood production code was, when it came into play, how it affected, just what are your overall thoughts on the production code? Production code. I'm not a fan of the production code, um, honestly, even though it did give us some good things like screwball comedies, having to, excuse me, to hide things um, that they found morally inappropriate. So you started to get that being more implied in movies as opposed to kind of being in your face. And that's what's beautiful about about this pre-code era, which is early sound. Um, people, it's, I 
you know, some people argue that it may be 1929, 1930 to maybe 1934 when they finally started to really implement that code. Um, but um, it's, it was basically before the MPPDA uh, really uh, got enforced and, and, and basically forced them to to not really be honest with, I guess, portraying real people, real struggling characters. So this this pre-code era is kind of this this gold mine of, of all of these different um, portrayals of, of, of women that are incredibly modern, uh, where there's usually their name up in lights and their name on, on the poster. Um, usually they're portray- portrayed in a really sexual manner, um, but it's not in a way that necessarily degrades them and it's a way that's almost freeing um and they're, they're, there's prostitutions discussed a lot a lot of women have to resort to that in order to make money because it is in fact the depression um there's a lot of uh depictions of of gangsters and criminals that don't necessarily portray them as terrible people uh, in the same vein uh, it's kind of you know this is what they're having to do for to survive so it's essentially this era is kind of almost a reflection on on american culture at the time and it's showing audiences i guess the struggle everybody has and so it's done in a way that feels like maybe it was yesterday that these are that these movies were made. How and complex were the characters are! A lot of the movies you picked for today yeah. were in the top ten box office performers of their yes. years. So it just yes. shows that it was big business, which probably is yeah. what called so much attention to the like the, the explicit content in them. Perhaps if they'd been flops, right. people would have paid uh, less attention. But there, in any given time, there's always going to be people who say, "Don't use that language. Don't depict people in such and such fashion. Don't tackle mm-hmm. these kind of themes and stories." I am always adamantly opposed to those people, whether you're talking about music or video <laughs> sure. games or film or whatever the case might be. But at right? different points in history, and we've talked about this in the last episode, like we're seeing a modern day equivalent of where people are saying, like, you know, don't include this in your movies. That's inappropriate, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But in sure. the early 30s, we really saw it like become like a self-regulate, self-regulating body where you could not get the seal of approval to be released in theaters. So it's wasn't the equivalent of government censorship where they basically come in and take away your movie, recut it, and give it back to you. But the studios definitely recognize, oh, if we have a self-regulating body, almost like the Comic Code Authority in the 50s, then we can at least show that we're doing our due diligence to try and you know, not suggest that people actually have sex once they get married. You know, right. <laughs> right. Or in the shocker. cases of these pre-code movies, um, and one that we're going to discuss, uh, sometimes uh, it's a woman with two men. So. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, menage a trois. I mean, yeah, that, yes. if you watch a movie from 1938, 39, you are not going to be seeing any menage a trois. You might see two guys in love <laughs> with the same girl, like Philadelphia sure. Story or something like that but you sure. definitely won't see them all living together so it's quite a yes. different thing yeah so I, I you know and it's a lot of ways i guess like i said it's kind of this real it feels like at least to me from obviously you know this is this is so long ago now um it, it feels like it's, it's a real like viewpoint into how americans and europeans and, and just the world you know, struggled through that time with you know the, the first world war and then going to the second world war and the depression and just showing you how these people lived and, and how they struggled and there's in, in the meantime that this is when hollywood there there's a lot of immigrants coming from Germany um, that are mostly Jewish and already in like UFA and in a very successful film industry, probably one of the only industries that was competitive with Hollywood at the time. Huge. Uh, huge. Um, and they're they're starting to come into Hollywood and, and really impact our industry and change things. Yeah, especially um, like the photography styles. And yeah, I mean, you have so many directors from Hungary and from France and from Germany. The, the influx of talent in Hollywood in the 30s and early yes. 40s was the best basically talent raid on the rest of the planet that Hollywood has ever successfully engaged 
engaged. Even in the yes. late 70s, it's not like all of a sudden you had like Michelangelo and Tony Oni making like a whole string of movies. He might come and make like Zabriskie Point, but it wasn't, it was like a one off. It wasn't like all of a sudden we just went over to Europe and scooped up all the best directors and brought them back to, <laughs> to, to Hollywood. But in right. the early 30s, they were voluntarily coming over here. And obviously, Ernst Lubitsch was one of the most instrumental filmmakers in defining the style of Paramount at the time. Paramount was so sophisticated and so just, uh, it was explicitly sexual in the classiest fashion imaginable in yes. ways that you almost can't imagine that Hollywood or audience sensibilities were ever that sophisticated. You watch movies like Trouble in Paradise and so on and so forth. It's just staggering what he brought to the table and what has been lost since that period. But sadly, Paramount yes. now is like a fucking empty husk compared to what it once was. Uh, yeah, you could say that about Warner Brothers too, honestly. But, um, but Warner Brothers is still making piles of cash. Paramount in, is in real trouble. Like Warner Brothers is the only legitimate, of the old studios, one of the only of the legitimate competitors to Disney. Obviously, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, those are like the big competitors. But Warner Brothers has still got shitloads of brands and makes piles of I just of feel cash. like they're just void of, of talent outside of the mainstream, I guess, is, is what I was saying. But, um, but they in got terms like of the horror and like, you know, obviously Aquaman yeah. made a billion dollars and things like that. So they, they have, they're not going away. Paramount might just go away entirely. And that's one of, like, one of the most famous loss. logos. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a huge loss, especially since on our last episode with Paramount, we discussed how it was interesting that that Mae West was on their payroll. Yeah, absolutely. Just very, was a very anti-Paramount at the time, you know, you'd think. Yeah, Mae West, people don't know, in the 1930s, was one of the <laughs> highest paid people on the planet. <laughs> she was yes. she was making as, as much money as like William Randolph Hearst. Like it was something yeah. just ridiculous, but she was very right. popular. Very popular, unless she was on Broadway in New York. I don't know if we discussed. I think she had, was that when, I think that was when she was arrested. Um for uh, or they kicked her off Broadway. I can't remember either one. Um, but uh, she had a play on Broadway called Sex. So it said Mae West and then Sex Up in Lights, and they were just all appalled by that. So I, I just loved. That. I'm sure it sold <laughs> a lot of tickets. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, where are we going to start today? You got four really, really juicy movies, but this is, you are our guest, so we will start wherever you like. Thank you. Um, well, I would like to, if we can, kind of do them in order. So that would mean we would do uh, William Wellman's. Uh, the Public Enemy, and then Safe in Hell, and then Lubitsch, Designed for Living, and then lastly, Von Sternberg's The Scarlet Empress. Well, I love and adore William Wellman, but I must admit, this is virgin territory for the podcast. You have the honor of being the yes. first guest to crack open the career of William Wellman. So what is The Public Enemy? Fine. While we're on the subject, I wish you'd try to stay home a little more. I got to work, ain't I? Oh, Sure. Listen, Tom, I was in a place today, and I heard somebody say something. Well, what of it? Well, they were saying... Well, it seems as though they were pointing a finger at you and Matt. Who was? What right to say anything about me? Now, I... take it easy. You're always hearing things. You'll get too much in your nose someday, and you wonder how you got it. Well, for crying out loud. I heard a couple of guys talking about you. As much as to say you were in on some crooked work. What am I supposed to do, run? Well, you ain't asking me. You're telling me. And I don't know a thing, see? All I've got to say, Tom, is that you've got a good job now. You don't need these rats you're running around with. Well, I suppose you want me to go to night school and read poems. I've been hearing a few things myself. There's nothing to hear about me. I, that's all you know. You ain't so smart. Books and all that stuff don't hide everything. You're a liar, Tom. You're covering up. 
Cover enough for what? For you? Oh, you're nothing but a sneak thief. What did you say? You heard me a petty larceny sneak thief, a nickel snatcher, robbing a streetcar company. Um, let's see, probably a lot of people uh, that, that really want to dive into this era would discover that he was referred to as Wild Bill. And I think some people think that he was called Wild Bill maybe because he supposedly had this ridiculous temper on set and he was just known to to just not care that he was had these expletives and he was swearing constantly. Um, there's a great story where he was, uh, I guess, next to a trailer and Loretta Young was in the trailer and at the time she was uh, rather religious and... Uh, and she basically forced him to put money into a swear jar to her to donate every time, every time she heard him say something crazy. And uh, I think once, like, I don't remember why he lost it, but he just gave her $20 up front and then just went on a rant. Yeah, he's like, that ought to cover me for the yeah. next 20 minutes. Yeah, and just yeah, walked away. Yeah, he was a total, a legitimate wild man, was a pilot in World War One. had a horrible mm -hmm. wreck. I mean, but he also was from the silent era and knew how to get that camera up and moving and direct a movie like Wings and things like that, but he had this huge career with so many great movies, but was one of the true old-school, two-fisted, just tough guy directors, and if you got in his way, heaven help you. Yes, um, and that Wild Bill nickname, I think, actually came from um, when it was given to him by the French when he was uh, in the Lafayette uh, Flying Corps in, in World War One. Because of him just volunteering to do these these crazy missions, well, like back a then, you basically would like yourself. fly like on a prop and like expose to the air, and you would just like yeah. keep the bomb in your lap and like throw <laughs> throw it out manually over the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then if you die, you get replaced by another airman. You know, it's just kind of I guess that 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 uh, sort of a factory line of sorts, which is terrible. Um, but uh, I think that's also why Wings was so excellent because he actually lived it. I mean, just some of that footage I rewatched it within the last year, and, and that movie was what 1927, 1928. I know it was the first film to win Best Picture at the Oscars, um, but just watching it, it, just there's this cloud sequence with all these planes at once in the sky just flying around. It's just, it, it's just how did how do they do that with 20s uh, camera tech like technology? It's just it's incredible stuff. It holds up even now. So Absolutely. there's a lot of his input from I think his experiences, even in his war films that he does, that I think you really get because he was there, um, and and he was in those really scary situations like there's some great um i think it's called battleground is which is probably one of his better war it's pictures a damn good yeah my grandfather yeah. loved it yeah and it's it's very real in the sense that you're in the trenches with the soldiers and i guess at the time that that wasn't that wasn't a, really how the war films were made it's almost like a semi-documentary style where you get like the kind of like a hand cam like feeling of of really being there with them with with the terror that they're going through and what they're experiencing so he was kind of revolutionary on a lot of fronts especially um not only since he was there and so then he could make very real war pictures um and uh, also because the camera wasn't static with him, which was kind of an issue. Like when they made that, uh, they they went from silent pictures to sound pictures. Yeah, they put the camera in a big glass booth because the cameras yeah. were so fucking loud. You had yep. to have it in this stationary booth, and all of a sudden, movies stopped moving. Exactly, and like that, that iconic shot in, in Wings, that tracking shot that goes over all the tables. Yeah, um, yeah, which I it think gets tweeted uh, daily by somebody. <laughs> Ryan Johnson, because that was in the Last Jedi. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Did, yeah. He, did he do an homage to Wings? And uh, he did. And I was like, oh, I guess this is the only part of this movie I really like. But uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a scene on the on the casino planet which looks like it was like straight out of the prequels, and then it had like the camera tracking shot over all the tables, and I was like, well, good job. I like this. Oh this, man, during the casino wings. planet, that's when I had to go get yeah. myself a very large soft drink. I remember just sitting. I was like, I am fucking dying. I need sugar <laughs> and caffeine. And my little brother mm -hmm. knew something was dreadfully wrong when I came 
came up with a Coke the size of a human being and just started slurping down. Like, I need to try and wake up somehow. But yeah, ah, that's, that's yeah. another topic for another. We'll bring you back for a Star oh, Wars yes. episode down there. I don't want to okay. taint this episode with discussions no. of Roundhead Ryan Johnson. <laughs> so let's get back to the public interview. But yeah, but, but as you mentioned, getting the camera moving again, I, I guess was, there's a great documentary about him that you can find on YouTube where he wanted like a, a dolly shot set up. And like, oh, well, you can't do that now because it's we're shooting in the sound air. And he's like, that's completely ridiculous. We can just add in the sound later. And he just... He refused to be handcuffed creatively because of the changes in the industry. But I feel like he's one of those guys who really thrived in the 30s, making movies like Nothing Sacred and so on and so forth, and um, uh, the Oxbow Incident. But of all the guys in the 30s and early 40s who were making these cool, tough guy movies, I mean, there's Raoul Walsh, there's William Weldon, there's John Ford, there's Howard Hawks. But he's right in there with all these mean old bastards who made all these really ruthless flicks. All the greats. And, and I, you know what, if it wasn't for uh, Twitter and people discussing movies on Twitter, I don't think I would ever really hear people talking about uh, William Wellman. It's almost like he's he's unfortunately somewhat forgotten right now, which is which is sad. I Even think- in the 90s, he was pretty forgotten. Like when I first got yeah. into movies, I was in I guess I saw Little Caesar in a film history class and I was like, oh, my God, that's just, that's just shit. And I kept reading that Scarface and the Public Enemy go hand in hand with it as one of the great early gangster movies. So I was like, yes. all right, well, let's watch the Public Enemy and let's watch uh, Scarface. And I loved all three of them. And depending upon my mood and how much caffeine I've had, I'm always changing my mind of which is my favorite. I think I've seen the Public Enemy, though, the most of the three, but I have a lot of love for all three of them. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm Me personally, um, even with Cagney uh, jumping into it, um, I do love White Heat, uh, Raul Walsh's movie. Um, but I think I still prefer Public Enemy, even just for the, the pre-code uh, gangster films. It's just so much about it that is just so different. Um, just from, I think, William Wellman just being experimental with the camera, like hiding their faces and, and hiding violence in a way that just allows your imagination to just take over. So then it's just so much more violent. I mean, yeah, it's like one of the my killing of putty nose and things like that. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of stuff occurs off screen. Um, you know, it's a smoking gun, literally. Um, so and, what is uh, the story of Tom Powers if people have not seen this flip? Sure. So um, Tom Powers. Uh, well, it's it's I think it's uh, Cagney's. He already made a lot of movies up to this point. I think it's his sixth or seventh movie. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, James. Um, but he originally, I don't think, was going to be the lead. Which he was going to be the wingman, yeah. Wingman. Um, and I believe that um, it may have been from uh, some sort of stage test that uh, Wellman decided that uh, he was actually fit for the role of Tom Powers, who's an Irish-American in Chicago who's basically a kid on the street and, uh, and uh, opposite his buddy. Um, and they're they're deciding uh, – his buddy, I think, was Edward Woods, I think, is the, the actor. Um, Let's see. I got, and, it, I got it open right here. Hang on one yeah. sec. It is Edward Woods playing Matt Doyle. Wonderful. Okay, so um, they're essentially, uh, easily said, probably just hooligans on the street, just uh, basically robbing and stealing in order to to survive. Um, and initially, it's for uh, Putty Nose, uh, who wants them to steal fur coats from a factory, and, and that, that doesn't end well. It ends with a, a, a dead policeman. <laughs> also, it ends with James Cadby freaking out and shooting a bear. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's like a scene like right out of Roadhouse. It. Yeah, it's, it's Chicago. Why would there be this like huge grizzly in the factory? It's yeah. okay, Tom. Um, but... Um, but yeah, it ends with a, a, at the time an incredibly violent scene uh, with shooting the cop, and you, essentially you don't see it um, him getting shot. It's off screen. You see like him running into the shadows. It's very it reminds me a lot of early silent films with just the use of the shadow and the lighting. Um, and then you, I think if I remember correctly, you see his feet after he's the policeman is shot dead. Yeah, he runs into the alley. You hear the guns, <laughs> and then you just see the feet as yeah, as, as uh, Tom and his buddy make a hasty really retreat. Powerful. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, eventually this this movie, I think, starts in the early 1900s. And then uh, it kind of these these beautiful like intertidal sequences of the years as they pass by and you kind of, you know, learn who these individuals are. And unfortunately, they don't grow in terms of, of the decisions they make. Now they decide as they're older to uh, capitalize on, on the beginnings of the prohibition and to uh, which is why I guess the uh, the original novel this is based on was called beer and blood and i think it was unpublished um but uh it's essentially what it what it turns into it turns into we're gonna steal a lot of of uh beer from a brewery and uh that doesn't necessarily (laughs) go all that well for them either um and uh so it's kind of you're kind of seeing them basically taking advantage of society in order to to be able to survive and i don't know if it's just me personally but i don't Tom Powers is not really a love him or hate him type of character in a way. Like there's, you can kind of almost sympathize with the decisions he makes, except for the infamous scene with, uh, with, with May Clark and the grapefruit. <laughs> I mean, a, a clip that'll get you in trouble on Twitter today. For, yeah. for people oh, who gosh. have not seen the movie, there's an infamous scene and there are a lot of different versions about how it came to be filmed. But the quote unquote most official version was that it was almost like an onset prank to see how the crew would react. And May Clark too, and yeah. James Cagney shoot the scene where he smashes a grapefruit into her face. So she's, giving him grief about having a drink with breakfast and William Wellman decided to put it in the movie and it became yeah. a very successful like publicity still apparently May Clark's ex-husband went to see the movie repeatedly because he wanted to see <laughs> yeah. that scene over and over again yeah. and for the rest of his life when James Cagney would go out to restaurants people would send grapefruits over to his table and things like that so <laughs> yeah. Uh, the definition of a notorious scene oh yeah that and that and, and the scene of um of uh, him uh, when he decides that he's going to, uh, excuse me, there's a gang war has already occurred and now he's going to go inside the building and, uh, and and shoot up all of these guys and it takes place and it's just torrential rain. Yeah, beautiful that, that shot. Those two scenes probably are the ones that stand and out the most the to me. you hear the wailing of agony inside as it comes yes. out. Yeah, br- brilliant yeah. photograph scene. There's so Again, much about this movie that's yeah. just like world-class filmmaking. It's one of the best things William Wellman ever shot. But in the end, this is the James Cagney show. Like Martin Scorsese, when he was shooting The Aviator, got together most of like the young cast for the film and just wanted to give them an idea of what the early 30s were like since that was kind of the period of a Howard Hughes. And he decided to show them Public Enemy. And you could tell that Leonardo DiCaprio and all of his peers and all of his friends they were totally uninvested in the movie until James Cagney shows up and he walks in the room. He does a strange little like twist wave and there's so much charm and so much star power. He just explodes off the screen and almost makes the rest of the cast seem invisible until yeah, you does. start getting some of the uh, lovelier actresses who show up in the in the, uh, the the latter part of the movie. But you want to talk yes. about a star making performance. James Cagney arrives like fully formed with this movie. Oh, he does. And he's got like this. I noticed it when I was rewatching it for this episode. He does like this little like short, like lovable, almost like punch thing to people. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he does it to his, I think his mother does it to him, which is great at one point in the film. Um, but yeah, he's just the, he does it in the opening persona. credits when they're introducing yes. all the characters. Because yes. I, yes. I posted the opening <laughs> credit bit like a month or so ago, and people are like, "What is it?" Because now it's like something out of The Sopranos, like, "Oh, it's doing a doggy style," and that's kind of yes. like what people will do. I don't know if it had the same connotation in the, in the early thirties, <laughs> or if it was like yeah. a boxing thing. But that yeah. opening credit sequence is my favorite opening credit sequence of the entire nineteen thirties. This beautiful music kicks in, and then mm-hmm. it's like. Well, Guy Madden's imitated it several times over. They introduce all the actors and all the characters are playing like, you know, Putty Nose and Patty and all these different people. And it is just, I think my tweet was all I want for Christmas is to be one of these characters. And it just, people took off with that tweet and they they just loved it. 
<laughs> it is an iconic opening. Um, yeah, especially since it, it, is very, it just veers away from from your traditional opening, especially of this period, like before uh, you go back to Star Wars, before George decided that credits should go at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the music's um, so beautiful. And I love how it's employed at the end during, I mean, the movie ends in horrific, brutal, really sad, depressing, depressing fashion with the mother mm-hmm. excitedly preparing his room for him because she thinks he's coming home. And he is coming home, but what she doesn't oh, know he is. is he's being brought home by his competitors who have beaten him within an inch of his life and murdered him and left him for dead in the front door. And it's just but having that callback to that music, which is yeah. cheery at the opening and then just so eerie and dark at the end. I, I love the ending. That end, yeah, that ending is, is very dark. Um, I remember the very first time I saw it, I really kind of couldn't believe that that was the ending. I don't think I was a fan of it initially. Um, his older brother just looks at him and just kind of stumbles yeah. out of frame. Yeah. And fade to black. Like, that's the fucking end. That's it. Yeah, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and now he has to, you know, again, something off screen. He has to go and explain to his mother upstairs uh, how, how her, her son arrived home. Um, but um, as far as other... Um, wonderful uh, stars in this picture Joan Blondell who's in a ton of, of excellent pre-code well, we movies we talked about her in uh, of Gold Diggers in 1933 but I love yes. Joan Blondell she, she is I just a little firecracker yeah yes. um, she did, does a movie with Cagney I think it's is it the same year I think it might be the same year there were so many movies that came out every year with, with a lot of the same stars especially Wellman he was making like five six movies at a time every year um, Blonde Crazy gotcha I've never seen Blonde yeah. Crazy it is hysterical, and it's it's Cagney and, and Blondell together. I highly recommend that. It's wonderful. It's very funny. That's the biggest um, benefit of the studio system at this time, because now if a filmmaker wants to make a movie, you know they either develop or write the script, then they go out and raise the money, and it's a big, giant pain in the ass casting and everything, and they shoot it, and it's like a... It's almost like you're starting up your own internet startup company. You, you have to be yes. much more of like a tech entrepreneur than a filmmaker. Whereas if you worked for a studio back then, you just went from movie to movie, whether you're an editor, director, director of photography, whatever the case might be. So maybe you didn't have as much input on the script and maybe you didn't have as much input on the editing. But goddamn, a lot of these directors <laughs> got a lot of time to practice. And it's like you look at yeah. Raul Walsh and William Wellman. It's like, how do they direct 150 movies? It was because it's insane. Yeah, they were, they were yeah. sharing the duties in a way that allowed them just to go from picture to picture to picture. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, the next movie we're going to discuss is also Wellman. And it's the same exact year. I think five, maybe six movies in 1931 that he did. His output is just tremendous at this point. But I do need to call attention to one thing. Like, you don't want to talk about him being like Wild Bill Wellman. This is something that would not happen today. But there's this really intense scene where Tom and his buddy are leaving a building. It's like, oh, I just got boined up. That's all. And they're walking around the corner and they hear this coal truck and like these rocks being like moved around. And they, they both spin around, drop to one knee. And then they walk a few feet further, and then yeah. a machine gun opens up on them. But William yeah. Wellman brought in an actual machine gun operator. Yes, and he really w- shot at James Cagney. <laughs> and they waited for James Cagney to clear the frame and go around the corner. And they just yes. unload on this like marble wall. But it's like, wow, that looks really, really real. It's because they're just shooting the marble with a machine gun. Yes. I read I read somewhere on that that um that what did the the studio I, I can't remember what executive it was or, or who said this um but apparently it was more expensive for them to fire blanks so they were just you know really unloading on on Cagney I think the next movie he did Taxi was probably the last time they really shot at him I think they almost at that point I don't know I think they might have almost came really close to to shooting Cagney but in, in terms of even the extreme lengths they would go to in those days back to to Wings if I remember correctly Wellman. Uh, made the the actors in the film 
one of which was uh, Gary Cooper at the time before he was really famous, uh, learn how to fly. So all those scenes with the the planes and, and that film are, are, in fact, those individual actors flying. Tom um, Cruise so is get, doing it now for the Tom Cruise yeah, sequel. Good point. He's, now, now yeah, he's Tom learning how to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> yeah. Hanging off a cliff and disarming a, a bomb with his teeth. Yeah. But it, it, it gives it a little extra air of authenticity. But also, we can't move from, away from this movie without mentioning Sam Nails Nathan, who is kind of, in a lot of ways, the guy who takes him to the dark side. It's like, look, not only are we going to be bootleggers and sell beer, but if people don't buy our, our beer, they're not going to buy any beer. And they start really re- resorting to ruthless, bloody methods to defeat the competition. But it leads to one of the funniest scenes in the history of gangster movies where Nails Nathan gets kicked in the head by his own horse. And Tom <laughs> and his buddy are so pissed off that their buddy's been murdered uh, by a horse. They go out to the stables and it's based on a real life <laughs> incident. They go into the stable and they shoot that horse to death. <laughs> <laughs> It's like I I I always I always laugh with that scene. I because you just the sound of the that sounds terrible, but that's how yeah, it sounds. Peter's not horse a fan being, of the scene. Yeah. No, Peter, don't listen to this part of the podcast. Uh, the uh, the scene, the noise that they have for the horse when it gets shot reminds me a lot of uh, James Whale's Frankenstein when they're in the house and they <laughs> they hear the monster. Uh, it's just kind of yeah, it's it's funny and it's really frightening at the same time that they they would go to that length and kill the horse that 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 did murder nails. Well, there's. I mean, Little Caesar, Public Enemy, and Scarface are all wildly entertaining movies with a lot of dark humor, and they have all these like public service announcements tacked on the beginning and end, like this is a tale yes. not to be imitated, and it's uh, a horrible, tragic tale of what happens when you know people have no other options. But it's almost mm-hmm. like they always conflict with the vibe and tone of these movies, which are wildly entertaining. And apparently, a lot of gangsters back then would see these movies and be like, "Whoa." That's like cooler and more entertaining than we are in our own like actual like lucky lucky Luciano started imitating a lot of these actors because he was just so in love with the depictions of these characters in Hollywood movies. So it, Orson Welles talked about it quite a bit in an interview once how it was a big example of life imitating art because the movies were just runaway successes and everybody wanted to be James Cagney. Yeah, of course. I mean, just just this. I feel like I don't know if it's Scorsese that said this um, or where or I don't remember the individual that said it in the industry, but they said it's kind of they feel like when you watch this, you can almost see that this is where like modern acting began with Cagney, uh, just just how he is with his mannerisms and the scenes and just how real it is. Like you mentioned, um, the the beer and the the sequence, uh, there's a particular scene where they go to a, a bar that is not selling their beer like they're supposed to be. And and just uh, Cagney sipping the, the huge uh, like stein of beer and he's spits it in the, in the bartender's face. I mean, a lot of the, the things that he does are, are very, very shocking and very different if you even compare them to, I think, other gangster films of, of this pre-code era. Um, and uh, the way he just bullies the bartender. And it's just it just looks entirely real. Yeah, and they did that scene again, like in State of Grace, like many decades later. It's a, it's a famous scene, but you haven't mentioned Mae West yet. Yes. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Was that Gene Harlow or was that Mae did West? Did I say Mae West? I think West? it was Har- that, I think yeah, you did. I sorry. think you mean Harlow. Gene Harlow. That's okay. My bad. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for the correction. Gene Harlow. You're May, May West would have made this movie quite different. <laughs> I think she still had grapefruit all over her uh, face yeah, at that point in yeah, time. Yeah. May Clark, May West, Gene Harlow. Yeah. It's all these fucking platinum blondes, and uh, yeah, you can you can definitely get into the quicksand if you're if you're not careful. But yeah, Gene There's, Harlow. Yeah. yeah Howard Hughes's main squeeze, who's like a year away from her own death at this point. But obviously, we talked about her in the previous yeah. uh, in the previous episode. Yeah, I love her, um, especially her her like South Bronx. Accent she has when uh, when Cagney first like rolls up and notices her um, after he's he's literally like I guess dumped May West or not, not May, May Clark West, yeah uh, May Clark yeah, yeah too many Mays <laughs> um, yeah so too many Mays 
But yeah, that scene with uh, with Jean Harlow that you mentioned, um, he, she essentially is like a mother figure to him. And, and, and I kind of took that as maybe it's because his his mother, even though his his brother, who is a, is a Marine, has kind of uh, more than once um, kind of almost subtly let his mother know that, no, he's he's not he's not doing good things. Ma. He's, he's not he's a good a boy. Cook. He's not good. He's not like me. Um, you know, I guess he can, he can be a little more, he can be himself. He can be more real and I have to hide from, from Harlow who likes the bad boys. So she kind of is almost that mother figure to him in that scene. I love that scene early on with the brother when the brother's enlisted going off to fight in World War One, and James Cagney is almost kind of smirking and snickering into his hand and his older brother's like, oh, well, I hated to be so selfish, but you make more money yeah. than I do. So I felt like it was yeah. my, when your country needs you, it needs you. But he, James Cagney just thinks his brother's a total sucker. I mean, it's, it's a, yes. much like James Conn in The Godfather where like, he just thinks like you're a sucker if you enlist and go off to fight for strangers and like who aren't your blood. And mm-hmm. yeah, James Cagney very much has that same attitude. Oh, yeah, he does. What about the infamous um, question that James Cagney asked Jean Harlow behind the scenes when he took one look at her in her dress and asked very, you know, brazenly, how do you keep those things up? And she said, with ice. And she went off to <laughs> do the exact same procedure right before they were going to shoot their next scene. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like in Showgirls, that's they, that's a gag, which is like, you know, obviously a movie about strippers in the 90s, but all these yes. beautiful kind of bucks and women in the 30s wearing these diaphanous gowns in every scene. But apparently uh, Jean Harlan knew that uh, a bucket of ice on hand was a, a useful thing to have for her career. Oh, she did. Yeah, I think I mentioned in the last episode she was known to put ice in her bra like before different takes. So, yeah, oh, nice. she's, she's definitely a fan. Good yeah. girl, good girl. <laughs> um, and in even that scene um, when he initially... Uh, meets uh, Jean Harlow uh, on the streets in Chicago. Uh, there's, I just love, we were talking about how he, he uses his body and his mannerisms. Like when he's talking to her and he likes her and, and you know, he's he actually is able to pick her up and give her a ride. Um, he kind of does this thing with his body where he kind of leans and falls with the door as it closes. And it's oh, that's great. Just, there's such little things like that throughout the whole movie that I absolutely love that I just, like I said to you, I don't remember seeing that often. He with, could have been a silent movie star. Films. He had such a oh, physicality. Yeah. And obviously yes. we've seen that in movies like Footlight Parade or Yankee Doodle Dandy where his dancing ability was ridiculous. I mean, he was yeah, an insane <laughs> dancer in so many ways. So bring, being able to bring that physicality and dexterity to to his performances, it just it's a different thing than like Edward G. Robinson, who's not going to yes. bring that kind of physicality to, uh, you know, playing the part of Rico. As, as, yeah, exactly. As, as wonderful as Little Caesar is, there's the, that extra, I guess, that extra level that this movie goes to, which is why I'm happy Wellman decided that he got the, the lead as Tom Powers, because he just brought so much more to the picture. Yeah, it's the beginning of a legendary career. I mean, you're talking about a, yes. the, the Mount Rushmore of great Hollywood movie stars from the 30s and 40s, from the, from the golden age. Not everybody's going to put the same people up there, but James Cagney's always going to be in that conversation. Oh, yeah. Very easily he is. Just like I wish Wellman was, to be honest, because I think he also belongs in that same conversation. We're bringing him back with this podcast. Bringing him back. <laughs> but like I said, like when I was in college in the 90s, like just a movie fanatic, no one knew who the fuck William Wellman was. So it's one yeah. of those things where... Yeah. I don't know if he ever was that popular with cinephiles, but for people who like old gangster movies, old war movies, and old comedies, to some degree with like Nothing Sacred, eventually yes. people come around and discover his work, but I've always been a tremendous admirer of his. Which is great why we have two movies by him to discuss this time around. So yeah. Safe in Hell, I had not seen this prior to preparing for this episode. Yeah. It was a delight to discover, so what's going on with Safe in Hell? Yeah. Oh, hello, Angie. Listen, dearie. A friend of mine called up and he's lonesome, see? 
His wife is out of town and he wants somebody to go places with him. Sort of show him a good time. I'm practically there. 14 Claybridge Apartments. Okay, I'll go right into my dance. Go on in, sister. Right here looking at you. How are you, baby? You've got a nerve. Oh, come. Send him for me. Well, what's wrong with that? I got lots of my little pal, didn't I? Since when are you and me, pal? Well, I don't just remember the date. Oh, you don't, huh? Well, I do. Oh, come on, have a drink. Not for a million bucks. Now, there's no danger of the wife walking in this time. <laughs> She's out of town. Come on, then. Hey, that cost ten a quart. You don't think I'd drink with you, you son. Why not? Say, what are you sore about? You don't know? You mean because I found out what you was doing? On the level, I never figured you'd wind up like this. Where else would I wind up after the deal I got from you? Ah, oh, that's all forgotten. Yeah? Say, we ain't gonna stand and chew the rag all night, are we? Come on. Cut that out! Oh, baby. You heard me, cut it out! You're the one man I'm drawing the line at! Why, you... Safe in hell. Um, it's even for pre-code to me, it was is a little amazing that they they made this. Um, essentially, um, Dorothy McHale, um, who's she's not nearly as I mean, she's I'm trying to think um what she she's she kind of essentially poor, poor man's Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, and she's a Ziegfeld girl, but she's um, good. I don't I like her in this. Yeah, she's good, definitely. But Barbara Stan, um, think, Stanwyck, who originally had the role, is a tight. Yes, yes. Um, and I think as far as the only other movie I think I've seen her in, it'd be Love, Love Affair with Humphrey Bogart, a very oh, young you. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, but um, this is, so I haven't seen a lot of movies with her. I will, I will fix that. Um, but uh, she is essentially this prostitute in New Orleans who is uh, accused of, of murdering her former boss. Um, and uh, then her boyfriend, who's a sailor, decides that she, you know, in order to, to not get convicted of murder, needs to immediately move to uh, the Caribbean. Uh, Tortuga is the island, and she essentially lives in this hotel with a bunch of other murderers and <laughs> <laughs> and thieves all hiding out. <laughs> There's no extradition law, so they can yeah. just hang out there till doomsday, just getting exactly. drunk and getting, getting yellow drunk. fever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
they're all all constantly trying to to woo her and then hitting on her and flirting with I mean, her. Woo is the nice word. They're all they're all pursuing her in, in, in their own unique ways. Very unique ways, yeah. especially Bruno. Yeah. Um, yeah these are some rough, dirty old bastards who basically spend most of their time sitting in a row just being disgusting, spitting on each other, like spitting shells of nuts and like saying they're worms. And I mean, these are these guys are foul, yeah. disgusting human beings. And it's basically like a lawless land. But I couldn't believe just how seedy and filthy and evil this movie was. I, it just it was a total it's revelation. Wonderful. Yes. Um, there's a, I don't know what New York newspaper, but I do know at the time that um, in, in one of the reviews, it might have been the Times, uh, that it's not recommended for children who was in bold. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, in the first five minutes of the movie, you've got yeah. a call girl, an old pimp, slaps a bottle to the head, setting the room on fire. I was like, this movie really wasted it's no nuts. time getting underway. Yeah. In the first five minutes, it's, it's pretty action-packed. And then she's, boom, she's in a crate on a boat. And her boyfriend is Tom's brother from Public Enemy. Yes, yes. <laughs> And then most of the movie is what you said. It's all of these these crooks and these criminals just in this seedy place, just kind of getting drunk. And basically they spend, at least for from the way that Wellman depicts the film, it looks like they're constantly looking upstairs to where her room is waiting for her to come out or for the next one of them to be brave enough to go up there and and, and try to see if, if she'll she'll go for them or, um, you know, whatever they wish she might do. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and like once in a blue moon, she'll come out and have some cocktails and have some fun. But it, there's always sure. hell to pay for because yeah. it gives these guys guys like this false sense of hope like oh she's out here drinking with us like game yeah. on and all the lewd advances <laughs> resume Yes. Um, and you mentioned uh, the worms in the water. That seems just nuts. Like when she notices, she goes to get herself some water. And I guess that's why everybody's drinking constantly. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't drink I wouldn't drink that water. They put bugs uh, deliberately in the water to eat to the get, mosquitoes. Yeah, 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 to prevent the yellow fever. Yeah. At one point, somebody offers to put a chicken in a room to eat all the uh, all the centipedes because the centipedes <laughs> will come after you. Yeah, the place is infested. Yeah, literally, especially with those men. It's a great representative of, of that building and everybody hiding out. Um, I had a centipede situation once when I first arrived back in North Carolina to go to business school. It was um, all my furniture was still in the U-Haul. I arrived late at night. So I just grabbed like a sheet and a pillow and I went into, I I don't even know if the power was on yet, but anyway, I went into my new home that I rented in advance, got got down the floor and while I was asleep, I remember I was thinking I had, I was having a dream and I thought there was something on my chest and I kept like touching it and grabbing it, thinking that was like a a bag of like plastic or something like that on my chest and suddenly this thing wraps around my finger and I was like, and just leaped to my feet. Yeah, there's this giant fucking centipede that are wrapped up around my finger and oh, scared oh, the Lord. shit out of me. Luckily, it didn't well, yeah. bite me. But yeah, you can like, lose limbs sometimes if those things get you. <laughs> yeah, I've had cockroach experiences in North Carolina. I haven't had that, thankfully. Yeah, cockroaches uh. are fucking bad. In New York, we, we definitely have no shortage of them, but what was interesting about this is that you know, <clears throat> the early 30s isn't necessarily famous for having the world's like deepest bench of great roles for non-white actors, but two of the more chivalrous, noble, heartwarming, decent people in this movie are the only people in the movie who aren't like it's I don't think I was trying to do something like, oh, all black people are angels and all black and white people are demons. But the bartender and the waitress, they're always like singing songs to each other and being nice. And one of the few times where a guy tries to get physical with the lead 
it's a black guy who steps in to her aid and takes the punch on her behalf. And I thought that was most unusual for 1930 fucking one. Very forward thinking. Yes. Um, So it's it's not it's even kind of like uh, referring back to you when we discussed uh, some Mae West movies. Uh, That's the kind of the same the same thing in those films where we're depicting them as people, which is nice for a change. Hollywood, especially at that point in time. Yeah. And um, honestly, in terms of that place that she was staying, they were they were all the only like light I guess she had in that situation they were only people that were, were trustworthy and, and were, were caring and kind to her um and people she did, really didn't have to worry about until you know lo and behold she finds out she wasn't a murderer yeah her pimp <laughs> yeah. shows up late in the movie and as it turns out he's got like a little insurance game going because while she set his room on fire and it appeared as if he burned alive he's maintaining the ruse that he's dead so he can collect on the cash but yes. it doesn't take long for her to kill him for real <laughs> yeah and then you have, the, you have this horrible situation where the island just gangs up against her because the guy who's like the local warden wants nothing yes. more than to get into her pants and he's like well, he's gonna basically find a way no matter what gives her a gun fully intending to arrest her for possession, even though he's the one who gave it to her. And he presents her with this option, like, look, you can come live in my jail in the lap of luxury for six months and be fine, or we can put you on trial for murder and possession. And she just fucking lets him have it, like punches him in the face. Like the only time you'll ever touch me is when you put the noose around my neck, et cetera. And it's a and really that's our end too. Yeah, it's a bleak but beautiful tragic ending where she's you know getting some love and attention from that awesome little puppy dog. The the dog in this movie is fucking great. Whenever there's action or activity, the dog's like, "What's going on?" He's always like kind of jumping into the action. But I love how she yes. kind of, she walks off. Is it sunrise or sunset as they all kind of march her off to the gallows? I can't remember. I kind of to me it seemed like it was sunrise. I mean, I don't know if it's sun. Maybe it make more sense though for it to be the sunset because she's walking towards the gallows. That that might have been what it was. In any um, event, it's an extraordinarily beautiful shot, even if it, it, is, it is a very bleak, tragic ending. Just like Public Enemy, another tragic ending. I mean, she decides that you know what? I'm just gonna say that yeah, I killed him cold murder, which isn't true really. She, he was trying to rape her, and uh, she just in an act of self defense shot him. Um, but she preferred, I'm, you know, I, just looking at what her, her situation is, like you mentioned, like Bruno, the man that gave her the gun for, you know, quote unquote protection, um, you know, is basically said to her, you know, if they, they find that you're innocent, um, you know, you're going to have to give me, uh, you know, six months in my prison, but, you know, with sexual favors, you know, and uh, or, uh, you know, the other situation, which is what she goes with to say that she did, in fact, kill him. And, uh, you know, that's our like you said, that's our beautiful ending, which and, is also very bleak. And you get this great confrontation between them, which looks like something out of the silent era where you have these long close ups of the warden with like, you know, like spit and drool dripping from his lip. And he just looks like this sad, dejected, disgusting human being. And you get this interesting yes. like Irish shot into her yes. neck. But this was like some yeah. really extraordinary visual storytelling that really employs a lot of those late teens and 20s techniques a lot of techniques which had kind of sadly disappeared by the time you get to the early 30s yeah it's a great point that you made that because it very much is very 20s that shot where it is that just just her neck that it essentially zooms in on um it made me think a lot of uh the the film that i love sunrise song of two humans it does, there's a lot of that that happens in that film so i think uh, maybe Wellman got a lot from that um but um, and then you also back to the dog mentioned the dog. There's this wonderful scene where they're running upstairs because they hear the gunshot and the dog takes the lead. Yeah. <laughs> which is hysterical. Well, some dogs are just like them. My mom has a West Highland Terrier like that, where no matter where there's action or activity, he's always the first to arrive to check it out. Like if it's a door <laughs> slamming or a raised voice uh-huh. or a car. Scream, yeah. Just he's like, what the fuck's happening? I'm on the scene. And he's like, 
clean as hall as ass. So yeah, just some some dogs are like that. They want to know what's going on. Of course, um, but yeah, the the lighting in this in this film it's very um, I don't know if uh, very German expressionist. I think the lighting, the style, the dark, um, but the camera moves. It's not. It's not as static uh, as, as a lot of uh, other directors at the time, I think, because of what Especially the shots of those fucking dopes sitting in their chairs getting wasted with the cameras kind of <laughs> panning down the row of all five of them. The whole row of them, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, there's some interesting shots like with the chicken when it's thrown over the ledge and uh, one of the, the, um, the African-American uh, gentleman catches it and he has to prepare it for dinner. But even just that whole shot, you kind of go a little bit with the chicken while it's thrown over. It blows in mind that chicken even lived that long because they're not necessarily treating it very delicately. I mean, that, that chicken oh, no. gets put through the ringer quite a few times yeah. before they finally decide to eat the fucking thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a, just a mean, dark, aggressive movie. I couldn't believe just how ruthless it was from <laughs> start to finish. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one reason why I suggested it because um, I think you know it's if somebody was like, oh, what's what's a pre-code movie like, you know, and, and of course you know I would suggest Public Enemy because it's such a classic, um, but you might throw this in there too. Well, hookers and gay people disappeared after the code came in. Like, you'll, there's a great scene in Public Enemy where Tom goes to the tailor and there's a a blatantly very light in issues gay tailor yeah. who's like squeezing his muscle and admiring his strength and everything, and it's like, oh, I love that. Yeah, because yeah. at one point Tom Powers <laughs> makes a gesture to his uh, his belt line or his waistline it's like yeah make sure you leave enough room down here it's like you know it's a very suggestive scene the guy's like oh well, what oh, about wonderful. up here and like squeezing his arm like that shit disappears overnight and yeah obviously the prostitutes disappear overnight as well especially prostitutes as like the heroes of movies yeah exactly um i i, I like that uh how they're <laughs> how they weren't really one-dimensional in this like as they were in the silent pictures a lot of them were i mean there's only so much you can do with with a lack of sound and then and then unfortunately after this when the code is enforced um so yeah, it gives you so much freedom to actually portray characters as 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 I think real people. Absolutely. Oh, you know? well, one last bit of trivia about Saving Hell. Apparently, Michael Curtiz was originally going to direct it. It would have been quite a different movie. I mean, I love Curtiz. Oh, me too. Quite a different director from Wellman. Although I guess in the early oh, yeah. '30s he was doing stuff like Mystery of the Wax Museum and Doctor X, like some really grim, dark, fucked up movies. So so even in pre-code, yes. these guys that would later be super mainstream were going to the dark side and i and i miss that now that whole going to the dark side aspect of hollywood no i agree i think um i don't even know if it's necessarily the code to blame i just think it's maybe it had something to do with just that era that just you know, influx of of immigrants to the united states from europe and, and their style that they brought with them that is kind of lacking now you know maybe maybe that's that's what did it. Yeah, I think also just it, audiences, their tastes evolve, change, and grow, and there's always an ebb and flow of the tide. My grand, my uh, my mom's uh, uncle, so my great uncle, he's always talking about being a kid in the early 30s and how you would go to school, and sometimes kids would just get a sore throat, and like they would go home, and three or four days later, you'd find out, oh, they fucking died of diphtheria. Like I think it was just a, <laughs> it was a different era in terms of yeah. mortality, as well as just acute anxiety about the the the, the economy and like what what the future might bring. And that's so, true. if you're gonna get some entertainment, you kind of want some rough and ready entertainment that's gonna really kind of hit you in the gut and really give you something memorable. So I think there was just a legitimate taste and hunger for these rough movies. Cause like we said before, most of these, the last one we're going to discuss is a flop, but most of these movies were very successful commercially. So these were mainstream yes. movies. Yeah. Even though like, like they just, 
I don't think that um, audiences now are, would really be for something all this different. I think people have been conditioned to, to just expect certain things from certain genre films. Um, you know, especially with as much as I love a lot of the superhero films, they want their, you know, this the origin story and gets the girl and the villain and save the world type of thing. I think they're just used to these certain type of stories and certain type of characters, which is fine. But I yeah. feel like if, if they were open to more, you know, you can enjoy more than just the next Avengers movie, which I'm looking forward to. There's so much more out there. What I hate is when I see people talk about superhero movies only in the context of which character is going to be in it. Well, don't you want to see a movie with so-and-so in it? I'm like, of course, but I'd rather see yeah. a great movie with a character yes. I don't give a fuck about than yes. a, a mediocre movie with a character that I know and love. Like, It's not just about which character you use and which actor gets to play it. It's about filmmaking. It's about storytelling. It and it's, yes. that sadly seems to be totally lost in a lot of the, the superhero fans where the only thing they care about is like, well, I want to see Cable and Domino in a movie. I'm like, yes. But that's that's the beginning of the conversation. Like, there's a lot more it work is. to do beyond that. Yes, it's like, of course, yeah. It's like I want to see that too. But you know, I want them to to try new things, and I want them to not be afraid to experiment and to decide to maybe veer off. Like, so much of what um, Spider-Man into the Spider Verse did well was that ability to have like Avengers, all of those characters on screen at once, and just the way they implemented all those different dimensions. You know, but that that takes guts to do something really, really different, and and that was just so full of of just so, it so many to be characters. A billion dollar movie. I loved it and adored it. into the Spider Verse. I thought it was just yeah. a fucking home oh, run. Me too. <laughs> From whatever angle you want to discuss it, they just they just absolutely knocked that they movie it. out of the park. Oh yeah, they, yeah. Especially for for Sony having its hands on it, that kind of that was really impressive because yeah, because well, they're trying. Spider Spidey <laughs> is mixed. Yeah, unless it's Although I know you're a big PS4 Spidey video game fan, so. Oh, I am. That game is wonderful. Yes, yes. So <laughs> Sony had a very big year with Spider. Last year, Spider Man was in Infinity War. He they obviously Venom was a hit, even though I hated Venom. Spider Man, the video game, did really well, and they had yeah. ended the Spider Verse. So yeah. for for the character, 2018 was an absolutely huge year. But I don't want to get too derailed on Spidey because we've got a very right. famous movie by the great Ernst Lubitsch coming up, yeah. which is all about Menage a Trois. I'll have to sew a button on there. Jilla, I'm a pretty gloomy guy tonight. I have an idea I'm going to be a rather bad company. Why don't you, why don't you go out to a movie or something? Tarzan's playing at the Adelphi Theater. Go on, like a good girl. Everything seems different, doesn't it? You better go, Jilla, to Tarzan. I fancy this, uh, what you might call, tension. We keep up for some weeks. Wouldn't it be wise if I moved to a hotel? Yes, ma'am. I love you, Jula. Why lie about it? You can't change love by shaking hands with somebody. We're unreal, the three of us, trying to play jokes on nature. This is real. A million times more honest than all the art in the world. I love you. We have a gentleman's agreement, but unfortunately, I am no gentleman. 
Design for Living, 1933, yet another yes. movie that I'd not seen. Prior to preparing for this episode, I've seen a lot of Lubitsch like Trouble in Paradise and Heaven Can Wait and uh, Nanachka and To Be or Not To Be. Like, I, I love his movies. Stop Around the Corner. It's wonderful. Oh, yep. my God. I mean, it's one of the best movies I've ever fucking yeah. seen. It's just yeah. adorable. But this yes. movie had slipped through my fingers. So what's going on in this lusty film? Wow, this movie I, is... Thanks to Criterion, I think people are able to see it now. I feel like from what I've read, it was kind of, unless you threw out a lot of money for some earlier DVD set with a bunch of his films, um, it, it was really hard to obtain because they were out of print and expensive. And, and I think, I don't know if you watched the Criterion version of it. It's beautiful, um, everything they did. I sadly watched it in an illegal fashion, but I believe it was ripped <laughs> from Criterion. So. <laughs> well, if Filmstruck was still around, you wouldn't have had to do exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah, um, no, the loss of Filmstruck really fucked me up recently. Like, I did a giant uh, Federico Fellini episode with Tony Stella recently and I was like oh shit this is actually yeah. going to be challenging I just spent like yeah. 60 bucks to get fucking white chic on DVD yeah. from like early 2000 I mean yeah so I I'm already feeling yeah. the pinch over the loss of Filmstruck exactly um but anyways, uh, that's 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 what makes this movie so pre-codish is essentially it's it's a woman and two men deciding that uh, they're going to live together. And both of the men, um, Frederick March and Gary Cooper, uh, essentially, they're both they both love her. They both want her and they kind of get into this agreement um, with her. It's Miriam Hopkins. Uh, yeah. Also to, from who's Trouble in, in Paradise. Paradise. Yeah, yes. and she's incredible in both. She is. Um, and uh, they decide that, you know what, why don't you live in, in our flat in, in Paris with us? Um, they're both artists. Uh, Gary Cooper is like a painter and uh, Frederick March is a playwright. And they are both unsuccessful at this point in time. And they decide that she can live with them. I think she's in the advertising agency. Um and uh, they decide that uh, she can live with them, you know, under the, she is the gentleman's agreement, she says. So <laughs> <laughs> there won't be any sort of uh, sexual anything going yeah, no, on no with us. In the hay. No. They're going to focus on work and she's going to kind of be there. She's going to basically kind of be their taskmaster and beat the drum and yeah. make them work. I guess also their muse since they're both, you know, obsessed Infatuated. with her. Infatuated. Yeah, and uh, there's, this movie is just essentially a series of this uh, so-called gentleman's agreement unraveling. Like, there's a great scene where she says, um, well, you know, I'm no gentleman. Uh, As she <laughs> lies back very invitingly on the bed, I was like, holy shit, that is, yeah. uh, you know, hotty toddy God almighty. How, how did this go over with audiences in, in 1933? It went over very well. It was a hit. Yeah. It was yeah. a top ten yeah. movie. Yeah, um, but uh, there's another man kind of in her life somewhat, uh, Max, who uh, is, I believe, her boss Yep, and has never had any success with her romantically. Never even made it to first base, as he says. <laughs> and I love that because you think that, you know, only only people nowadays know what that means. And it's like, no, no, your 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 great grandparents or grandparents were using that terminology as well. Um, uh, well when, uh, during not to get too personal, but during your upbringing, sure. what were the various bases? Because what I noticed that people have different people from different towns always had a different definition of what those different bases implied. What were the bases? Yeah. What were the bases? Uh, yeah. Yeah, what was first uh, base for you uh, during your childhood? My childhood, it was, uh, if, if you got a kiss and if they hugged you when they kissed you, that was first base in my yeah. childhood. Okay. North Carolina it, first base was open mouth kissing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It, was, it, was some, it, was, it was some serious stuff. But yeah. I, when I moved from Virginia to North Carolina, suddenly like, 
for whatever reason, it was a smaller town and all the kids were way more advanced on that front than I was. And it was like this being like thrown into the deep end of the pool because they were talking about things. I was in a single sex school in Virginia, suddenly in a okay. co-ed school in North Carolina, where like by fourth grade, we were playing truth or dare on the playground during lunch and stuff like that. Like it, they were, they were just fast. And so, yeah, <laughs> at, at the Greensboro That's Day crazy. School in the, in the mid eighties, first base was open mouth kissing. Yeah. Well, mine was the, the, the early nineties. So I guess maybe that's why. I yeah. Know. Things have gotten more squeaky clean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but back to design for living, but it's incredible just how brazen and provocative it is sexually and how there's nothing uncouth or no. kind of like, uh, kind of grotesque in the way they express things. It's so delicate. It's what, as I said, the Lubitsch touch, the Lubitsch touch is in this ineffable, undefinable quality where only he could create it. And a lot of other people came close, whether it was Billy Wilder or Otto Preminger, like, uh, but everyone acknowledged it. And of course, Billy Wilder, very famously had the sign, like how would Lubitsch do it over his desk? Yes. He was just, most filmmakers were completely in awe of what he was able to achieve. And as Peter Bogdanovich asked John Renoir once, like what was Lubitsch's most famous achievement? And John Renoir said, uh, he invented the modern Hollywood. <laughs> And he did. Like he basically created yeah. these genres, like romantic comedies, that we love and adore so much, and have been watching for eighty years at this point. Always very elegant and sophisticated when they say uh, Lubitsch touch. At least it's how I take it from uh, everything I've read and all of his movies. There's just, I mean, how do you make a movie like this? You know, necessarily elegant and sophisticated. What and was kind the last of elegant movie you saw? Of his or modern day, general? yeah, modern day. What was the last movie that, that you would describe as elegant? Because it's a very rare quality in movies. Yeah, that's just it. And I've and I've been like binging a ton of movies from 2018, trying to catch up on everything. And let's see, um, I loved Roma and Mandy, but I wouldn't call other either one of them necessarily elegant. Mandy's a fucking hoot and a half, but it's not, not yeah. elegant. It's not the first word oh, that comes gosh. to mind. I still need to see Cold War. Maybe that's elegant. I don't know. I mean, I not feel like elegant um, but unforgettable. It's one of my favorite movies okay. of last year. I love Cold to see War. That. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing that next week too in Amherst. Uh, um, you know what? I because in the 30s and 40s, elegance was a very valuable kind of genre. Whether you're talking about Joan Crawford movies or MGM musicals, whatever the case might be, people. I guess, I guess because people are so fucking poor during the Great Depression, elegance yeah. was almost like a form of like wealth porn, and you were being in, yeah. you were being invited into this world that you would never experience, and they were just creating these fantasies. And different directors did it to varying degrees. Like Gregory Gregory Lacava did it pretty well with My Man Godfrey and stuff like that. But that was Lubitsch excellent. was the mm -hmm. undisputed master in that terrain. And you say that too, and I think Bubsley Berkeley, when you say elegance and, and opulence, it kind of fits into that um, when we discussed Gold Diggers of 33 last time. Um, but uh, you know what, too? Um, thinking ahead, um, Von Sternberg definitely has elegance and sophistication yeah. in his movies. But it's yeah. like elegance combined with like really ruthless bloodthirsty <laughs> oh yeah but it's beautiful yeah he's got this really we'll get into that but it's almost nightmarish and some yet and somehow beautiful yeah uh, the two Vons were both good like Eric von Stroheim yeah. who claimed he was like part of like the you know the like the Habsburg dynasty which was a total fabrication but uh, yes. Eric von Stroheim and Joseph von Sternberg brought this like European uh, sophistication that was totally exotic and otherworldly but as, as it oh, yes. turns out in the case of both of them was more of an artistic creation as opposed to like inside knowledge about how these worlds operated and so on and so forth, which is fine by me. It's like they were just yes. masters of doing like these incredibly Baroque studio creations, but let's stick it to design sure, for sure. living <laughs> for now. Um, yes. Based on a play by Noel Coward. And if people yes. listen to our David Lean episode that we did with Stephen Saunders last summer, I guess, Noel Coward in the 30s was like the fucking Beatles. He was a playwright. He was a humorist. He was an actor. He was just 
the king of the theatrical world in the UK, one of the most famous people imaginable, had a lot of his plays adapted into movies, but he says that when it comes to this one, he what, hated what, it. What did he say? I'm told there are three of my original lines left in the film. Mustard, Such right? Such original ones as, pass the mustard. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, it's basically an original creation by Ben Hecht. And Ben Hecht, yes. it should be said, one of the all-time great screenwriters, worked repeatedly with guys like Howard Hawks. If you look up his credits in the 30s and 40s, you'll be like, oh my God, oh my God, holy fuck, holy shit. Yeah. But obviously he was one of the authors of The Front Page, which became His Girl Friday, and he it's was one of the titans. Movie. But he basically rewrote this movie from word one. Oh, yeah. Um, when I read that, I thought it was hysterical that that was mustard. Uh, past the mustard was like one of the only original things he said. Um, but regardless uh, what Bill Heck did, I, this is like kind of, you know, thankfully to Criterion and hopefully when they get that Criterion channel up and running very soon yeah, later um, to this make year. up for the loss yeah. of Filmstruck. Yeah, I think they said April. Um, Sadly, they won't have all the TCM movies. That was the beautiful thing about <laughs> Filmstruck is that it had all the Criterion collections of and it had Turner Classic Movies, which right. was you know a wonderful synergy between those two worlds. But yes. I just I need that resource back, and I I have already subscribed. Wonderful, same here. Um, I feel like uh, if more people knew about this, they would enjoy this a lot more. Who's that um, little puppy dog I'm hearing in the background? Yeah, there's a little dog locked off in another room. <laughs> gotcha. It's like the dog in uh, in uh, Safe in Hell. It wants, to, it wants to get in on the action. It wants to know more what's like, happening. More like a Mogwai. Yeah. Gotcha. Excellent. So you know, the tiny little fluffy kind of like lap dog, or yeah, don't feed it after midnight, which means never. Yeah. Gotcha. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at uh, some of my notes here, and they're talking about how, and from 1929 to 1934, that how basically Lubitsch made Paramount the like the epitome of sophisticated sexiness. But some of the movies that in- included under that are The Love Parade, Monte Carlo, Trouble in Paradise, which is just astonishing, Smiling oh, Lieutenant, One Hour with You. But that Design for Living encountered some pretty heavy resistance even before the code like the code had been around but it was officially implemented in 34 but this movie even in 33 had some big time pushback but by the following year it was pulled from release you can no longer release this movie it was a hit in 33 unreleasable in 34 and that just shows just how abruptly and quickly things were changing in hollywood yeah, it's horrible. And I remember mentioned this, and I think in the last uh, time we discussed pre-code, um, that uh, essentially a lot of these movies remained away from the public and the ability to access them until I think like the 60s. Uh, so it's just think about how much time that is for, for to go by and to have a lot of these movies unavailable to people, which is why, you know, people generally speaking think that, you know, I wish we, movies would go back to the way they used to be because they have no idea about this wonderful period in time when people were actually portrayed as they really are. Yeah, I find that when yeah. people make sweeping generalizations about the past, those tend to be the people who do the least amount of homework about the past. Yeah, exactly. Or like the, the common thing I hear a lot online, which I wish movies were still good. It's like, I, I don't know what you're seeing. I can't watch them fast enough. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, on any given year from basically birth of a nation up till now, because that's obviously like the beginning of like feature films in Hollywood. So roughly a century of movie making in any given year, you're going to see five to 10 kick-ass flicks and then maybe yes. five to 10 more that you really enjoy. And the rest are just disposable, utter shit. And the reason that we think yep. that Hollywood made such great movies in the thirties and forties is that we don't watch the hundreds of movies that came out in 1933 that <laughs> are not as good as design for living. Exactly. We just remember the good ones. Yeah. Um, and uh, thankfully, um, Design for Living has now uh, resurrected itself as, as as a great Lubish movie that I didn't know about until I blind bought the Criterion release a year or so ago when it came out. Um, but it's incredible just how bra- like when when they get when they throw down and then George is out of town and his buddy arrives back from London with he's got this giant successful hit in, in just a single evening. 
they're getting down to it. And the next day, when Gary Cooper's character goes back, he's like, why are you wearing a tuxedo at breakfast? I mean, it is, without yeah. saying, she's fucking both of you. It's made as explicit as humanly possible yeah. that she is screwing both these guys. And at the very end, they're in the car together, kissing each other on the cheek. Like, the games are going to continue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it, at the end, you kind of see that I guess they're finally fine with it. Because then that way they both they both win, I guess. And she does as well. Um, but uh, up until that point, though, it, it's as one leaves town, because now his uh, his playwright is uh, he as a playwright. He's successful in London, Frederick March, partially because of the effort she put in um, kind of just pushing this on, on the right people in the industry. Absolutely. Um, yeah, um, the same thing ultimately happens with Gary Cooper's character, who's I love the it. painter. The first night Frederick March is gone, Frederick March is gone. Gary Cooper keeps telling her, "You better go see Tarzan." Like he, he knows, <laughs> he can feel the sexual tension yeah. in the air, and just keeps saying, yeah. "You know what? I just, I just, I just, I just think you need to go see Tarzan," and just keeps saying yeah. it over and over again. <laughs> Yeah, just go see some uh, Johnny Westmuller on screen, Absolutely. please. Absolutely, if anything, it's yeah. going to get the juices flowing. So. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that kind of that just she kind of just keeps going back. Whoever is essentially left behind at home is uh, then who she ends up sleeping with, and then vice versa as it keeps taking place until finally uh, she marries the she goober. Yeah, marries the goober, and she's off in Manhattan. Uh, and then I love how they crash his advertising party. Um, after she, well, I think it's like she gets married, and then that same day to Max, and on that same day, she the, the plant that she receives from them, I guess, is a wedding gift. It just kind of really stands out amongst all the other ones. Also, she's having know. to hang out with her husband's fucking loser friends who are just <laughs> lifeless and humorless and joyless. She's not having yes. fun at all. She just wants to be left yes. alone upstairs. And when Frederick March and Gary Cooper arrive, it's, it's like life comes back into the building, and it's yeah. just so exciting. Because what I love is, you know, initially when they find out what's going on, that as as necessary they they exchange a few blows and they knock each other down but i love how they immediately just start sharing their woes and just getting shit faced together because they realize oh well we still got each other she's gone off to get married mm-hmm. so let's just hang out and get completely wasted because we got nothing else to do yeah and <laughs> something else i love too is when uh, she's now in manhattan with max um i think it's i don't know if it's before they get married or whenever but they they're on fifth avenue and they're purchasing a bed and it reminded me a lot of, um, I was thinking back to Amadeus, the, the Milos Foreman film that I love with the bed measuring scene. Um, to see the Mary fit, Figaro. Yeah. yeah, it was, ex- <laughs> it's, it's very similar to it and it was as funny. Um, but it just kind of shows you in a sense, like the, the, the way that um, the, the, the gentleman that's supposedly selling them this bed, like they're measuring each other and then measuring the bed. And it's like, yeah, well, she's, I don't think she's a, is a one man kind of person. This isn't gonna, this isn't gonna end well for and her. Of course, and of the course following the, year, you you get the Hollywood beds like from 1934 yes. to like 1960 husbands yes. and wives slept in twin beds. I mean, it's utterly <laughs> ridiculous, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, that's when people yeah. start suggesting any sort of changes for restricting freedom of expression. I think sometimes people underestimate just it can sometimes take a quarter of a century to unravel and reverse that damage. So I just feel like it's always good to tread lightly when you're talking about making any changes to anything, because so yeah, once that damage is done, it can be irreversible. Yeah. Like I mentioned with, um, I think audiences, it's not their fault. They're conditioned to want certain types of stories, their movies to be certain ways right now. It's kind of the same thing. You can be conditioned to expect certain things of your characters. And, and then like the instance you mentioned with the twin beds, um, like right when the code was starting to be initiated and like in the end of 34, 
uh, they were told that women, in order for a woman and a man to be on, on the same bed together, he has to always have his feet on the ground. So there's that wonderful scene in Design for Living when they they crash uh, Max's advertising party, and they actually both are hiding in uh, Miriam Hopkins's bedroom. Um, they're all three of them are on the bed together, laughing when Max walks in. Uh, so it's it's just it's little things, little touches like that that are that are much more real and and not constrained by ridiculous censorship rules. Absolutely. And at the end, all yeah. three of them seem completely delighted with how things turned out. And yeah, it's probably the most happy ending for a menage a trois in Hollywood rom-com history that I've ever seen. Because most, <laughs> most menage yeah. a trois scenarios in Hollywood movies end with somebody getting their feelings hurt. But they, they all, they exit the picture, the best of friends. Exactly. And the happiest endings of the three films we've discussed so far. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Gary Cooper apparently was thrilled with the movie because he actually, he, he was uh, fluent in French. I can't remember why he was fluent in French, but he actually got to use some of his French in the context of the film. Oh, I didn't know he was fluent in French. It's interesting because yeah. when we're going to discuss um, Scarlet Empress, uh, that's actually supposedly uh, Marlena Dietrich. She's like knows French better than she knows uh, than English. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch gears. I didn't expect to see you here, Your Excellency. Why not, Your Majesty? This is my pet regiment. You look ravishing. Now, there's another good-looking soldier. Come here, Lieutenant. What's your name? Dimitri, Your Majesty. And your duty, Dimitri? In charge of the night watch, Your Majesty. It must be cold at night. Sometimes. Sometimes, Your Majesty. Anyway, I'm certain you're very efficient, Lieutenant. Is he captain? Tell me something about him. He's very efficient, Your Majesty. He came to join our regiment about a year ago from the Swedish front, where he fought bravely for about two years. He's also distinguished himself by exemplary bravery on the Turkish border. This should have been brought to our attention before. I can't understand why such a brave man hasn't been decorated. His Excellency doesn't mind. Not if Her Majesty will tell me why she continues to avoid her Majesty will tell you tonight, if you will call on her. With pleasure, Your Majesty. For bravery in action. See that you do justice to it in future emergencies. Scarlet Empress from 1934, one of the last movies to kind of sneak by before the, 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 the onrush of the code. And I just have to say... I think this is not only one of the best pre-code movies, it's one of the best movies of the 30s and one of the best movies I've ever seen. And it yes. plays a huge role in my initial interest in movies. As a second year at UVA, I took this film class called Film History Part 2. And mm -hmm. it was the beginning of sound up through the beginning of widescreen. And we studied John Ford and the Marx Brothers and a lot of great stuff. But we saw both The Blue Angel as well as Scarlet Empress in the context of this class. And it was Wonderful. totally lost on me at the time, but I've revisited it many times since. And I still have my early 2000s criterion from like 2001 that I whipped out nice. in preparation yes. for this episode. Yes. And it just uh. floored me. But if people have not heard of The Scarlet Empress, what the hell is this movie all about? A really stylish and, like we mentioned, elegant and sophisticated yet somewhat demented uh, portrayal of Catherine the Great and her rise to power. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to, to describe it. Um, 
and by stylish, it's just there's this unique look and style to uh, Joseph or Josef von Sternberg's films that um, in terms of that era, his stand out. Um, and, and I know that he's described as probably one of the first, if if not one of the earlier auteurs. It's very much his his style at work here, which is amazing with the, the Hollywood system, um, especially since the I think he made six movies with Marlena Seven. Dietrich. Seven. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, because uh, he did Paramount and Ufa, he did it was Blue Angel, and then he did the remaining rest, I think, which is Paramount, yep. right? Yeah, yeah, because um, he was already a Hollywood filmmaker, and went, but he spoke German because he was born in Austria, raised in America, but went back over to Germany to make Blue Angel, both in English and in German, and it was just a monster hit, and so he wooed her back to Hollywood to make Morocco, and she very rapidly became a huge fucking star. There's um, it's really cool. I watched the um, the the screen test that he did with her, um, and um, I think it's before he when he I think first realized that she it has the ability to be an international star. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the screen test, but I've seen it's, a few and like when she's singing certain songs uh, and things like that. Yes, but she because yes. she had tried several times to become a star in Germany and hadn't quite worked out. Yep, and she yep. wasn't necessarily a spring chicken when she became a huge. She was like in her early 30s and a mother like. It wasn't like they yes. suddenly found her at 18 and groomed her. She had some experience in the in the world of movies in Germany. Just they hadn't found the the right quite the right project yet. But obviously, Blue Angel was tailor made and really showed off her best qualities. I think she said too. I remember um, and watching. Uh, I upgraded my Scarlet Empress Criterion to the uh, Dietrich and von Sternberg box set, which is wonderful. You should do it, James, just for the bonus features. Very cool. Um, they have like supposedly uh, her first television interview she did in Copenhagen in like 1971, um, and she mentions in the interview that you know everybody talks now about the Blue Angel and and how I was so great in it. She's like I, I you know I wasn't even um, really my name wasn't on that poster. I was I wasn't it was an nobody knew who vehicle. I was. Yeah, yeah. She's like nobody knew who I was, but now when everybody talks about it, and this is like I said 71, it's just oh you're Marlena Dietrich in the Blue Angel. You're, I think she's, she's got wonderful. like 15, 20 minutes of total screen time. Like Emily Young's yeah. in every single scene pretty much, but yeah. it was yeah he was the star because he had done the Last Command with Joseph von Sternberg only a couple years prior, which is his. Joseph von Sternberg's late silent movies like uh, Underworld, Docks in New York, and Last Command are fucking killer. They are some of the best I silent movies Underworld. by yeah. far. And I think a lot of people think, oh, Blue Angel, that was the beginning of his career. Like, he was already one of the best directors in the world a couple of years prior to that. He just, yeah, I, I, I can't say enough about him, but it's like late 20s to early 30s, he was on this just an extraordinary hot oh, streak. Oh. Yeah. And then he kind of crashed and burned and never really <laughs> reclaimed his sights. Like Anata Han from the 50s, his Japanese mm-hmm. movie, it's cool, but it doesn't reach the heights of that 10-year hot streak he had in the late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, because Underworld, like it correlating back to, to, to Public Enemy, Wellman's Public Enemy, I think Underworld is considered as like 1927, the first real gangster film. That movie's wonderful. There's one called The Musketeers of Pig Alley that D.W. Griffith did. Okay. And there's one uh, like in 1916. And there's one called Regeneration that Raul Walsh did like in 1917. Okay. But they don't feel like those kick-ass classic Hollywood gangster movies quite okay. like Docs in New York and Underworld. Dude, Docs in New York and right. Underworld, you're just like, whoa, all right, we're, it's on, <laughs> game on. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, with uh, Scarlet Empress, um, I don't even know how to really explain the style of it. It's just so distinct and so different from from any films I've seen. Maybe like Ivan the Terrible part one and two has that look, yeah, that it's, Byzantine. It's the creation entirely in a studio, which is first and foremost. Yes. So every ingredient in this movie from the – 
the gowns to the gargoyle statues to the candles to the armor to everything it's all an extension of Joseph von Sternberg's imagination this is not an attempt at recreating history this is not an no. attempt at authenticity this is Joseph von Sternberg's version of this story and he has this great line where he said with one exception every detail scenery paintings sculptures costumes story photography every gesture by a player was dominated by me the one detail <laughs> that's the exception is he used yes. one shot from an Ernst Lubitsch movie a crowd shot when after she gives birth because he's trying mm-hmm. to save money and apparently Ernst Lubitsch who was also the head of production at Paramount at the time got in a huge yes. fight with Joseph von Sternberg about it because he thought it was being um, extravagant and wasting money he's like well I'm stealing <clears throat> from one of your movies to try to <laughs> cut corners and save cash but oh, yeah they, did, they, did, not, they did not get along they hated each other oh, yeah. that's great <laughs> well sometimes the best thing comes from people who do not in fact get along I well, feel like von Sternberg marvelous artist but a, a very difficult person to get along with. Probably the best memoir ever written by a director is Fun in a Chinese Laundry by Joseph mm-hmm. von Sternberg. And the chapter devoted to his working relationship with Marlena Dietrich, probably the most entertaining chapter written by an asshole in the history of <laughs> Hollywood. And it's just extraordinary. And I'm, I'm going to read a, a pretty lengthy passage. And I, I apologize for oh, the length of this, no, but it's all about perfect. his relationship with Dietrich Do at it. the time. And yes. just what a fucking mega superstar she became he writes this about her he said men wished to lay fortunes at her feet and celebrities vied with each other to be seen and photographed with her tribute was collected from men of rank and fame the most famous actors wished to have her as their partner producers and directors couldn't wait until they could work with her and her circle increased to include the top writers and creators of her day dukes and generals and even the heads of nations wanted her (laughs) to grace their tables one journalist quoted in one of the many books devoted to her not only raved about her beauty but rated her brains on a par with those of Napoleon Caesar Mussolini and Lenin Opposed to this pinnacle of glory was her position on my stage. Here was no enthusiast, but a cold-eyed mechanic critical of every movement. If there was any flattery, it was concentrated in a, that's fine, it'll do. More often, she listened to, turn your shoulders away from me and straighten out. Drop your voice an octave and don't lisp. Count to six and look at that lamp as if you could no longer live without it. Stand where you are and don't move. The lights are being adjusted. So this is how Joseph von Sternberg chooses to describe her. He was madly in love with her. They had many ups and downs in their relationship. They ended yes. up being lifelong friends, but after their association drew to a close with Devil's a Woman, mm-hmm. she continued to make giant movies. His career started to see diminishing returns. So he, sadly, his post-Dieter career, it, like they did a, um, uh, what the hell is it called? Uh, I, they were doing an I, Claudius with, um, uh, what's, what's the uh, badass uh, actor who did... Um, uh, Night of the Hunter, Charles Lawton. Charles, Charles Lawton was playing Claudius, and they scrapped the movie like two weeks in. He had many fits and starts, but he just was never able to regain those heights. And I think Scarlet Empress is the peak of Joseph von Sternberg's career, and it's kind of all downhill after this. Interesting, um, because uh, I do love The Devil is a Woman. And oh, I it's think, great. It rocks. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And it is. I think it's right after this one. Yep. And then um, I think Marlena Dietrich said of, of the von Sternberg film she did, that was her favorite one. I mean, it's a killer movie. Yeah. But there's something yeah. about this Baroque, horrific ugliness and violence to Scarlet Empress. Like in the first five That's minutes true. of the movie, when the young Sophia has, is being basically groomed to become the, uh, the future wife of the uh, Tsar of Russia, you see a highlight reel of all the shit going on in Russia at that time. 
and How it's sort of disturbing. Women having their clothes ripped off and being raped it's and like being burned at the stake and like torture men, devices. Yeah, yeah, men hanging in bells and being whipped around and like people being thrown into Iron Maidens. It's like two straight minutes of torture, murder, and mayhem, and then it transitions and dissolves into young Sophia just swinging on a swing with her friends. It's so demonic. <laughs> it is, but it says so much. It's like it, it kind of gives us a glimpse into what the entire movie is going to be, or what like Catherine's rise to power really is going to be like. Uh, the uh, essentially the the half wit that is her uh, husband, the emperor, is going to enact Harpo all marks of that on evil. acid, but yeah, <laughs> yes. calling him a half wit is maybe doing him too much of a of a of a kindness. Oh, he's oh a, yes, he's a grown up sadist who walks around with toy soldiers just plucking the wings off flies just acting like a madman oh yeah toy soldiers that um essentially uh the the woman that uh he's clearly romantically involved with uh constantly goes back into the room every time to take back so they can spy on whatever the conversation yeah (laughs) but it's incredible here he is this guy he's either like drilling his soldiers indoors like a madman or playing with his figures like you know i played with figures from age five to ten i love my action figures but at a certain point you put the figures away but clearly at this point (laughs) he's not quite ready No, and and it's so funny too because um gosh I'm having a mind blank on the actor that plays him Sam Jaffe. Yes, that's who it is. Uh, he reminded me so much of Marty Feldman in uh, in Young Frankenstein. Just oh, minus that's, the yeah. hope. that's very the appropriate. Look and yeah. the silliness, yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously, in, in this portrayal and in, in this movie, this character, he's just a total tyrant, uh, especially with uh, all, all the things that, that take place after the mother that calls him the half wit passes away. I, I love the mother. They're like, this is a movie that's ostensibly supposed to be this great sophisticated historical drama but they cast a woman as the empress of russia who sounds like she's like a fishmonger from like the lower east side of manhattan like, yes! there's no attempt at making her no. like worldly or cosmopolitan no. it's like it's like no. did you just deliberately find like the least courtly person imaginable to play this part which i think <laughs> is part of the charm because there's a lot of savagery in this movie but she's a Tell mean it. tough as nails person but what really draws me to this is Marlene Dietrich has many fine roles, but very rarely do you see a great arc. Whereas with this, you see her as a wide-eyed, obedient, basically broodmare being groomed by her parents for larger things. And then there's like a several moments of like catalyst and change throughout where you see this gradual step-by-step transformation into this ruthless, power-hungry goddess that is worshipped by the Russian military. Totally different person. And she starts to like Russia and she doesn't want to leave and she embraces Russia's culture and really starts to thrive and is a very quick study. But just seeing that transformation, Blue Angel there's less of an arc and like uh, Touch of Evil with Orson Welles. These are all great roles but she kind of arrives and leaves intact as she was from the start to finish. But here you see her range as an actress and I think Marlena Dietrich was never more beautiful, but I think in terms of acting never showed more versatility. I agree. And especially with her facial expressions and her mannerisms, you mentioned that Cagney could have done a lot of silent cinema and been successful. She, like she, you can definitely see with her why she was a success, uh, success, not necessarily a success, but in a lot of movies uh, for Germany and Ufa at the time, she already had it down a lot of the way that her expression should be. I mean, she's, she's like also the straw a straw in her mouth and yeah, she's sitting she's with Alexi in the barn and just keeps putting the straw back in. It's so great. Yes. Yes, um, and uh, the the guy that um, that plays uh, her her love interest uh, the in, the count. Um, Let's call him Alexi. John, yeah, Alexi. Yeah, Alexi. Gosh, what is his name? John Lodge, I think. I think after his really short career in in Hollywood, he actually became the governor of Connecticut, which I thought was funny. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, he's a total stud. So he has a rise to power, kind of. Yeah. Oh, but they, his character is hysterical. But one of the big reasons where you see this catalyst for change is that Sophia is feels betrayed because Alexei originally told her before they went to Russia that her husband was tall and strong and dynamic and ferocious and heroic and brilliant and like all these things. Of course, <laughs> it's like he's like barely like a, a, an idiot man child. And so she's always kind of like punishing Alexei for that initial betrayal. But the big betrayal is when the Empress asks Sophia to sneak out the back entrance, blow out the candles, and let her lover in, who turns out to be Alexei. And it's from that point on where Sophia goes out into the woods, basically screws the first soldier she comes across, and gives birth to the son and heir that the uh, that the kingdom needs. And it's from that point on where, like, at one point someone says, like, your husband's very distressed at the affairs of state. She's like, affair? Like, what are you talking about? I haven't had a, an affair for some time. She's so <laughs> confident and so cool. And yeah. just from that point on, it's just like, it's Marlena, like, but like on steroids, turned up to 11. Oh, yeah, it is. And then it's also, you know, the whole pre-code aspect of it. They're telling the story of, of a woman in this in this position, which is very modern uh, even now. Um, and then I know they were doing quite a few movies on Catherine the Great. I think there was one in 34, which I think was the same year as this. I can't remember it. It's I, from what I from what I remember. I just know it wasn't that memorable. That's about all I remember of it. Um but uh, this one just has, like we've discussed, von Sternberg's style. But also, as I mentioned, you know, it's it's basically an Ivan the Terrible, but from from a woman's and a woman is, is in power. So that's kind of I think nowadays everybody is high on the idea of women having these roles, which I totally agree with. But it's nothing new. And you know, in Marlena Dietrich, definitely this is her movie. You know, hers and von Sternberg's absolutely. But she she owns every frame. I was that watching she's in. a Red Letter Media video last night, and they're talking about how you know at a time when people are keep ranting and raving and screaming about how they want great movies with great roles for women, et cetera, how a movie like Annihilation, which features five women co-stars who are all scientists and all brilliant and all equally interesting in their own ways, how that movie got totally ignored and dumped on the market and nobody talked yeah. about it. It's like all yeah. the things you're banging the drum saying you want, like this movie checks off all those boxes and delivers this like mysterious, cool, kind of esoteric it's, science it's fiction movie. Yeah. So, but we it's just a weird thing how sometimes it can be staring you square in the face and people still don't see it. But if people want yeah. to see a dynamic, rich, powerful role for a woman in the in Hollywood in the 30s. This is one of them. This yeah. is toward the top. And there are a lot of great Catherine Hepburn movies. There are a lot of great Barbara Stanwyck sure. movies. But you can't fuck with Scarlet Empress because it's definitely uh -huh. implied that all these soldiers that worship her like a god – She's laying quite a few of them. <laughs> she is. And yet at the same time, they don't view her in that, that entire perspective, especially when the, the coup takes place and they decide to, to actually, you know, put her in power and get oh, rid in of awe. her. They carry her around like and she like she's like, a, like she's an idol. Like my fate. This gave me just a wave of chills when I watched it a couple of days ago. But toward the end, music swells. They carry her into the room. She's wearing this white uniform with this white hat. The music just blasts. And you're like, oh, my God, like she is. is a fucking like yeah, a, a goddess is not a, is not sufficient of a word. Yeah, so. no, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 magnificent the scene, and then and just we've discussed just that the look and feel. It's the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's got this Byzantine look to it, but it's got this weird. Uh, yeah, it's like Saint Basil's Cathedral, but like spread yes. out over monstrous proportions. It is. It's insane how much detail there is. Like you could, I I want. I kept pausing the movie as I was watching it just because of all the different icon on the background, um, the different saints and, and and Christ and everything, just constantly everywhere. And there's a lot of wonderful symbolism with that too. Like uh, when uh, when when the, Peter is murdered. Uh, and it's it's actually so that you see the back of a crucifix and yeah. it's kind of 
almost like it's Christ watching this all happen. And it's done with these beautiful shadowy and the lighting and the whole thing, just this light and dark perspective with the whole look of that room. Uh, like when they carry her in and you see all of the flags that are representative of her and, and things that they believe in. And, and she's kind of almost hidden amongst them, but she's being carried and she's celebrated. It's it's a wonderful scene. Yeah, and I mean, a few minutes later when they're riding all the horses up the stairs and at the top, oh, she's just that. beaming with light. She's got this yeah. huge grin on her face and she's so proud and so excited as the whole like army of Russia is rising up to support her reign. It's a glorious moment. But going back to the whole lighting thing, on this DVD yes. uh, that I have by Criterion, there's a brief little snippet of Joseph von Sternberg, like in 1960, teaching some film students how to light a scene. And he had a style a that a lot scene. of people struggled with because he liked his sets to be really quiet. He didn't want a mm -hmm. lot of banging. He didn't want a lot of raised voices or a lot of alarm. He wanted it to be super silent. So if you were a grip or an electric or a cameraman or whatever, you better be prepared to work like a fucking mouse. <laughs> and But he knows precisely what he wants, and he knew how to light a scene. He knew probably more about lighting and photography than anyone else in Hollywood at that time, so much so that Dietrich would often look quite different in other people's movies. And she started to resent the fact that these other directors that she was being kind of sold off to didn't know how to light her. Like obviously in uh, Shanghai Express around. with the lights yeah. shining down on her and those beautiful cheekbones yeah. that she's blowing the smoke up, she knew yeah. how she wanted to look. Yeah, and and then like I like I just mentioned, uh, she she was uh, known to be difficult. She'd boss people around and say, you know, I this is how you light my face from this perspective, not this one, um, which which definitely, like you mentioned, is from von Sternberg, and I, it's only done her favors. I mean, as as frustrating as that must have been, um, because the the way that her face is, and just like you said, the very defined cheekbones she has. Um, so much of it is just that's all you really see when they kind of zoom into her face, regardless of what the scene may be. It's just how distinct her facial features are um, and her eyes. It's something that like in terms of, of this era and actresses and even going into the 20s, Louise Brooks does that to me with her eyes. Uh, Gloria Swanson, uh, she kind of belongs with those women in terms of, of their facial expressions and the way that their faces are illuminated. It just adds so much more to, yeah, to Greta Garbo. Yeah, yeah, Garbo, yes. Yeah, it's so, yeah. Uh, you know, when people talk about how Hollywood doesn't get, have great parts for women not in the 1930s yeah. like in the 1930s no. <laughs> there was an abundance of great parts for women it's just it's all about the writing and you got you got to find the good books you got to find the good plays and you got to <laughs> just got to find the right material and the right performer and throw them together and that's when the magic yeah. happens yeah, see, that's what kind of concerns me right now with this 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 uh, this movement where you know, and I totally get it. You know, it is exciting to to be more diverse and have diverse roles. It's important, but it's not new. And I'm more concerned with um, okay, who is actually behind the scenes creating this project? Who is writing this screenplay? What is the source material? I want the movie to be really good. And then yeah, we're, casting we're is one part of it. And if you yeah. have, like, I always bring up this movie as an example. Independence Day Two is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But when okay. it comes to representation like down to a perfect mathematical equation in terms of gender sexuality nationality like it's like the perfect China. spectrum of everything <laughs> across the board but it doesn't make it a good movie like it's yeah. a noble goal but it's part of the process it's not the end it's not an end in itself it's a, it's a means no. to an end and I, you know watch a movie like predator awesome representation and it fucking rules but it's not the sole goal of the production i think a lot of people now they look at a movie exclusively to, through the lens of ideology and they think well if you have diversity in the crew and diversity in the cast mission accomplished let's move on to the next project it's like well wait but you still got to make a movie you got to tell a story yeah, you got to yeah, yeah. have drama and excitement and emotion it's funny we'll, we will have arrived at that point when we're no longer discussing you know is this are, are all of these races representative all these different sexual preferences are men and women equally represented 
person. And when we stop saying that, then then we will have arrived, I, I feel. But another grievance I have is that people who bring this up a lot, oftentimes don't watch independent movies or foreign films. Like they, They're talking That's about true. it solely in big budget Hollywood movies. So I'm almost like, yes. you know what? Protest those movies all you like. I don't give a shit. Like if you want to make all these movies, you know, whatever, go for it. But if you really believe in this, like Marcus Penn was just brilliant about this. Like a couple of years ago and everybody's complaining about hashtag Oscar so white. It's like, but (laughs) are you watching all these movies from, you know, black filmmakers from Africa? Are you watching all these movies from France by like Claire Denis? Like, are you supporting all these movies that you claim you want? So once again, it's like. It's a lot the Academy of prote- definitely isn't. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of protests, but they aren't necessarily doing their homework when it comes to independent foreign films that are accomplishing what they say they want. Exactly, and and I don't really feel like I, I don't. However, this makes me sound. I don't feel like you really have an excuse these days. So it's just the internet. You know, it's, it's very easy to to do a little bit of research yeah. and and discover new things. But I guess it goes back to being conditioned and comfortable with certain things, or I guess willfully ignorant in some in some ways. But I mean, in terms of that discussion too, I really liked Black Panther. But uh, and I, I, it was fun. But it by no in no way to me was it the best superhero movie last year. Let alone was it deserving. Well, of best I saw picture. somebody Twitter Twitter say like not only was it not the best picture last year, wasn't even the best superhero movie last no, year. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> As good as it was, it, it, I don't think it belongs. In the, but then again, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Well, I, I don't do you a lot give, of those films belong there. Brady Sinellis on his podcast was talking about how sometimes you give Oscars because of what it represents in the moment. Like, does Glenn Close deserve a nomination because in her career, we've never properly acknowledged her career? Or does she deserve an right. Oscar because of the individual performance in a movie that nobody saw? And the Oscars have always blurred, yeah. Well, the Oscars have always <laughs> blurred the line between merit versus the moment, and more often than not, right. they will lean toward the moment. And Black Panther represents a moment, a moment in pop culture yeah. history. But as purely based on the merits, like we said, it's one of many superhero movies last year. Some of which are better than others. But the Oscars definitely will always defer to like when Paul Newman won the Oscar for Color of Money. It was often people thought, oh, this is his moment. We've neglected him for decades. Let's give it to him now when he should have gotten it for The Verdict or HUD or any of these other movies, et cetera. A career award, yeah. I mean, I feel like they did that with Gary Oldman, honestly, last year. I mean, yeah. It's It's like, where were you during Sid and Nancy? Where were you during all these other movies? Exactly. Sid and Nancy is so much better than The Darkest Hour. Um, But uh, in Darkest Hour is so much better than Vice. So I guess that (laughs) we're going on a downhill downhill slope. I I made a vow a couple months ago. In December, I finally realized... I'm not going to follow any of award season this year, apart from just like looking at the headlines and knowing who's nominated and who's winning. And I've been so much happier and so much having so much more fun just pursuing my interests in film and television yeah, yeah. and what appeals to me as opposed to checking off a list of all the things that I'm obligated to see. And I think mm-hmm. I'm going to do that from now on. Just watch what I want to watch and forget Great award advice. season entirely. Yeah, you know what? I'm kind of starting to lean that way after after this year because I'm like going through this list and I'm like, I loved the favorite and I, I loved Roma and a few of these I still have to see. But what what happened? Like, did you guys see any movies, Academy? Like, what, what's going on here? Yeah, it's it's a weird thing. And so I, I, <laughs> what I realized was back in college when I was just a movie just deranged lunatic. I never yeah. followed award season. All I did was follow my passions and I had a lot more fun. So I'm going to try to get back to that, um, that mentality, but getting back to this flick, speaking of following one's passions, there's yes. just so much great <laughs> shit in here. Like weird, like S and M stuff. Like when Alexi will like <laughs> kiss Sophia without permission and then beg yeah. to be punished. I'm like, Wait a second. Yeah. What the hell's going on here? This guy wants to be punished by this girl that he's, you know, making, um, you know, advances toward. And there's so many funny scenes like when he passes her a note 
and the empress sees it she's like what was on that note and alexi reads this thing like we're very displeased by how you're disappointing the empress and we think you should behave better and provide her with an heir and then the empress is like well i can't read like and gives it to sophia like you read it and sophia fumbles and stutters her way she's through trying to remember, what he, trying to remember yeah. what he said but i love the fact that here we are the empress of russia is illiterate and can't even read the note that she's caught being passed between alexi and sophia that says a lot too. You're right, doesn't it? Like that says so much. I mean, I know um, for Catherine, uh, Sophia, she she's from I think Germany, yep. right? Right. I know, yep, yep. So she and she was in and she's a noble. She was brought up in that family. So I mean, what what does that say? I don't know enough history to know about uh, Peter's uh, mother, the Empress at the time, to really know what her her background was to be in that situation and not be able to read. Well, just look at, like the feasts. Like there's a feast at one point <laughs> where you have like a human skeleton like dying in the punch bowl or like this vat of soup, and you're like, what the? Why is that on the dinner table? And there's yes. just like bones and just shit well, strewn all over the place. And I love how yeah. Alexi, after every time he like, he'll shit. get some huge slab of meat and shove it, in his, shove it in his mouth. He'll hold up his giant knife and someone comes up behind him and will wipe the blade clean before his <laughs> next bite. It's just yes. pure barbaric opulence. Very barbaric. And uh, it's fun. I don't know. Is that the same scene where she, the, the, the Empress, uh, instead of holding her scepter, holds like a chicken leg? I think so. Or yeah. A turkey leg? Yeah. yeah. It's hysterical. So there's like little instances of like comedy all like like kind of interwoven in this movie. Um, that one in particular, which is really funny when she holds up the chicken leg and thinks it's her. Oh, yeah. Her I, scepter. I laugh uproariously throughout this. But it's also just... <laughs> It's got so many different weird, interesting, conflicting emotions and just different forms of conflict. At one point when her insane husband confronts her about something, has all the soldiers pointing rifles at her and he walks up and he's waving a sword in her face and she just takes a little piece of like lace and pierces it over the sword, wraps it around and kind of casually throws the sword off to the side. It's such a great like confident feminine gesture where she just Mm -hmm. reduces them down to nothing in seconds. Yeah, she has no fear. And and then since he's just crazy, he just kind of almost forgets that they're there and orders them all off so he can go off with her quickly. But but just, yeah, there's so many depictions of that, which also just show, I guess, how depraved and scary um, um, that environment was for her with, with the, his current state of mind and the current state of that country. Um, it's funny. I, I think now, unfortunately, with the way that, that we are are uh, taught what Russia is by the press, we might still think of Russia in those regards, this country. Well, people can always watch the Oliver Cold Stone's uh, the Putin interviews. Oh, that they, the Putin interviews. Yeah. yeah, I need to see those. Yeah, I just saw them for the first time recently, and it, it was... I don't know if illuminating is the right word because you never quite know what's true and what's not. But if you want right. four hours in the company of Vladimir Putin, the, the, those interviews are there for people's viewing pleasure. Yeah, especially since he's a former uh, KGB agent or yeah. supposedly former. Yeah, God knows what he's saying. That's the truth. But I went to Russia um, summer 2000, either 14 or 15. I can't remember which, but I had a fine time. I went to Moscow for a couple of days and it was, uh, you know, quite, 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 quite different from America. But yeah. uh, it was quite an adventure. I loved it. You just got to be prepared for the fact that not a single solitary person, apart from people inside the hotel, are going to be prepared to speak English with you. There's just a mm-hmm. wall of no communication mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. open hostility. But it was a very cool country to explore. Very cool. Um, and that's what's interesting, too, is back to the style that von Sternberg had in this movie. Um, I love um, the it looks like a map painting of Moscow. Oh, those, like the scale models and everything. Yeah. Yes, and he uses yeah. those in Blue Angel as well, but he loves to build yes. models of city and just have his camera kind of float through. Yeah, because it's, it's this, there's this almost unnatural look to them and it's very twisted and sometimes almost a little nightmarish, but there's got this fantasy element to it. Um, 
and it's just very exaggerated and how large and the scope of this 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 skyline that, that Moscow uh, it does not have. Um, but the map paintings are beautiful on this. Yeah, I love it. And um, interesting stylistic approach as well. This movie's got like 600 title cards. It feels like a silent movie in a lot of ways where it, it, communicates, titles, yeah. Yeah, it communicates a ton of information through those title yeah. cards, which had basically been abandoned because you now had dialogue. But I love how it's a little bit of a hybrid because obviously Sternberg – his style came to fruition during the silent era. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you know if he was really influenced a lot by Murnau and, 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 and Fritz Long and everything? Cause it looks like it when you're watching this. I mean, it's if just, he, if he was, he was not, not about to admit it because Joseph von <laughs> yeah, Sternberg has... of all the arrogant directors who've ever lived. And there've been quite a few. There's a very good chance that Joseph von Sternberg might've been the most arrogant of them all. I, I love yeah. and adore him, but he, yes. like I said, you read a paragraph of fun in a Chinese laundry, like, Oh my God, you are insufferable. <laughs> love your movies. But Good God, he had a very high opinion of himself. Yeah, well, that's I guess why he was so confident in this this very unique style he has, especially for this movie. Absolutely. Um, I just like I said to you, I just can't get over how just dense like all the backgrounds are, just all of the the different iconography that's in the background. Um, this this Eastern Orthodox Church, which is like it's still to this day, it's it's supposedly that medieval, that Orthodox. Um, if you were to go to one of those churches, so it's just this this level of artistry and, and it even fills the frame with so much texture and detail. Yeah. Like, there's not a wasted frame the entire there's movie, no... and every frame like oh my god he packs a lot of information but it's all beautiful at the same time Yes. And like you mentioned the scene with um, the horses and the army that are they're kind of galloping up the stairs. It's always done from a perspective of uh, one of the statues or one of the iconographies and kind of you're almost looking at it. They're the foreground and then the horses running up the stairs. And that's all you really hear, if I remember correctly, is really just the the noise of the horses in this palace. But it's always done through you looking at the that, that art. Yeah, all around I love the, that art. Like, all, the, all the art's like people like dying on crosses and they all look like they're in agony deranged. and they're, all, yeah. they're all like holding candles that are like melting down their faces but all the stat and the, there's uh, there's some special art hang on i've got it written down they recruited it's, some very special artist to do all those uh statues and i've got it written down oh peter babouche from switzerland created hundreds of gargoyle sculptures of male figures crying screaming or in the throes of misery with which to line the hallways decorate the royal thrones and even appear on serving dishes and i love the royal throne is just yeah. like these two giant like eagle wings like everything is yeah. so exaggerated and so over the top that throne is wonderful yeah. um it might be my favorite from all the different movies and, and television shows i've seen i guess if you're into game of thrones you need to watch this movie too absolutely <laughs> I, need, I need that for my youtube blowing. videos yes you do <laughs> um I think so too. Oh, I was going to say to you too. I think somebody who um, is not familiar with von Sternberg or this movie might maybe they've played a lot of Dark Souls and then they watch Scarlet Empress. A lot of it reminds me of, of going through those games quite a bit, which I need. Interesting. To get back into. All right, I would love to see a Dark Souls game designed by Joseph von Sternberg. Wouldn't but, you? Yeah. yeah but if I people would. are curious about his career, I mean, this is one of my favorites. Blonde Venus is really good. Shanghai Express is one of my favorites in the 1930s. Blue Angels, great. Morocco's great. And then in the silent era, as I mentioned, Docks of New York, Last Command, and Underworld. But what I love about The Last Command yes. is that you have this Russian general played by Emil Yannings, who is at the height of his power <clears throat> up until the Russian Revolution, but one of the people he used to torture and abuse in the interim has become a successful Hollywood filmmaker, and he's played by William Powell. And suddenly you have a former Russian general as an extra in Hollywood struggling to pay his bills, playing a Russian general in a movie being directed by the guy that he used to torture and abuse. And it's like this incredible role reversal, but it's one of the best silent movies 
from that period. And I think it's yes. one of the Joseph von Sternberg's finest achievements. Yeah, I mean, if I had to, to pick, I mean, a favorite that he did with Marlena Dietrich, just looking at the this body of work, the seven, um, it might be Scarlet Empress, honestly, yeah. just for the style alone. It's very yeah. strong. Yeah, it's it's the most Baroque. It's the uh, He has a, an, a figure speech he used for describing it. He said that it was boom, 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 boom. He said the film was, of course, a relentless excursion into style, a visual mm-hmm. splendor verging on madness. Yeah, so um, yes. he, he, he knew what he wanted to make. And the movie was a colossal flop. Nobody went. I have no, <laughs> Nobody was ready. Yeah, people. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't even know if it was because it was ahead of its time. I think it's just too much style, too much evil, too much beauty, too much. It's just too much of everything. It's just it's an overwhelming movie going experience. And there, it has a lot of admirers like Martin Scorsese. But I think if in any era when it might have been released, it would have encountered some resistance because it's just too yeah. provocative, too unconventional, too extreme, too intense. But it's just a deliriously insane movie. And it just gives me waves of pleasure while watching it. Yeah, I think even now it might not be received all that well. And it's funny I said that when now we discussed the, the bitter tea of General Yen. I mean, there's just some qualities to it that um, I guess are, we're not we're not conditioned to really like this type of movie. Yeah, I, I, I think it's just like when sometimes when you have like a really intense glass of scotch and you're like, oh! It's like it's kind of overwhelming. <laughs> this movie's a little bit like that. It's just a very yeah. strong brew. And so you got to kind of brace yourself or just watch it a couple of times. Then you can kind of yes. surrender to its rhythms and uh, <clears throat> enjoy it for what it is. Definitely watch it a couple of times and uh, and then get the uh, the box set that uh, Criterion put out because it's yeah. wonderful, especially with all the bonus features. Yeah. And I hope they'll re- did they ever re-release their uh, box set of Joseph von Sternberg's silent movies? Because that's how I originally saw them. There was a box set no. from like 2000, <clears throat> 2001 that collected all those three movies. I am like 99% certain it didn't. Maybe you should ask Dave Eves. He probably knows. He is the expert on, <laughs> yeah, on that front. Yeah, he's the expert on Criterion. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. But I don't think he did. Well, any final words on the pre-code era or any of these four movies that we did not get a chance to, uh, you know, ex- get a chance to explore over the course of this conversation? Um, let's see. Um, honestly, of of the four, um, and if you were only going to watch a few of them, I would suggest Public Enemy and Scarlet Empress are easily, I think, the masterpieces out of this group. However, Safe and Hell and Design for Living give you something entirely different, even for pre-code movies, an entirely different experience. I don't even know how you'd really categorize them. I mean, I guess you could say Safe and Hell is a thriller, and I mean, you could probably say that um, Design for Living is a comedy, but there's so much more than that. Um, and uh, I guess I just, you know, contradicted myself. Yeah, you should watch all four of these yeah, movies. Well, and- <laughs> all three of these filmmakers are some of the best filmmakers ever. You can't go wrong yes. with any of them. So yeah, all three of these filmmakers are well worth an intense deep dive. Very important, and all three are very different from each other. Um, and I, I guess minus the the arrogance and um, they just they, they knew I guess that they were as important as they were with their different styles and what they felt was important. Uh, they I think I don't think a single one of them got along all that well with um, any uh, of the uh, insiders in Hollywood. I know Wellman definitely didn't. Well, Lubitsch um, had the, the the magic wand because he was the head of production at Paramount, so it makes it easier to get the projects you want when you're when you're running the show. That's true. But uh, they are all three of them are very important. So they're definitely worth spending a lot of time diving into each of their individual filmographies just because just watching them, you start to notice that flavor that they have, even for that time period, which is fascinating because it was a studio era and it was very controlled that these three individuals were allowed to be different and be themselves and and kind of experiment with things that the, the industry was already experimenting with. They were already experimenting with sound. Absolutely. Well, any games on the horizon you're excited about? Because like Martin Kessler and I were talking about Shadows Die Twice, which comes out in March. Uh, oh, I can't wait. Yes. Yeah, have you any advanced buzz or word on that one? 
Um, I do know, um, see, I don't like to spoil myself with a lot of stuff, kind of like Kingdom Hearts 3. I kind of like to, you know, I only know that there's like a Toy Story world and I know there's no Marvel or Star Wars, so I'm ready to to jump in and experience those worlds. But I do know with uh, Sekiro uh, that um, it's not going to have the RPG elements necessarily like the Dark Souls it's games. It's three, three talent trees for the, how you do it. Like yes. It's only one class and it's three talent trees with like samurai, stealth, and some other field. Oh, your, your arm. You have like a mechanical arm that you can develop. So yeah, I, w- yeah, I watched a I watched a playthrough of like the first zone, and so it's got a similar combat style as long as you want to use a katana. Like you're not going to be yes. experimenting with a hundred different weapons. You've got your you kind of your core functions, and then you can develop them as you like. So it looks like less experimentation in terms of different classes, but there's a lot of variety just in terms of the samurai that you want to build. But looks pretty goddamn cool, and it's almost like Spider-Man, like shooting cables and like you know pulling yourself around and getting in position and yeah. cutting people's throats and great arterial blood sprays, like classic Japanese movies when you yes. when you take people out. I, I I'm starting to get very very pumped up for it. And stealth is a big part of it too, apparently. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of yeah, hiding in bushes and cutting people's throats and all that good <laughs> stuff, whether it's like Shadows of Mordor or whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. But I, I love the games that give you an opportunity to be a, be a proper ninja. Um, I think as far as what else I'm looking forward to, it's um, also um, the Bloodstained Ritual of the Night game, which is from... Um, Shimura, who did the Castlevania games, oh, is cool. very supposedly it's like a spiritual sequel to Symphony of the Night, which, which is, is one of the all time great games. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, so I, that's. I, played it through both like the upside down world and the normal world like 10 years ago and i recently uh, uh, um, downloaded it again and i played through the first half but the the music's so cool and symphony of the night it came out 20 years ago and it still it's holds crazy, up isn't it? pretty yeah, fucking it's cr- well it's crazy how, do you watch the castlevania cartoon on netflix i did yeah what did you think of it i fucking loved it yeah, <laughs> like warren ellis is one of my all-time favorite comic writers and how i, I just heard like learned recently warren ellis who's one of my all-time favorite writers wrote every single episode of season one and two and he's working on a season three it's like why didn't anybody tell me that warren ellis wrote this really mean nasty bloodthirsty yes. cartoon based on one of my childhood favorite game franchises but i guess better late to the party than never but yeah castlevania is yeah. the shit yeah, I can't wait for Bloodstained. There's a lot of uh, videos online of that I, I've been watching frequently. I supported it on Kickstarter, so nice. um, yeah, I hope that that uh, is out. When I was in like, fifth honest. grade, Castlevania was like the ultimate meat grinder that used to just eat us all alive on the on the NES. And I recently looked yes. up a speed run of it, and I saw somebody clear the entire game in eleven minutes. I was like, eleven <laughs> minutes? How's that even mathematically possible? Because there's a lot of yeah. like cutscenes that are pretty lengthy yes. that you can't get around. But sure enough, eleven minutes cleared the whole goddamn thing, and I was just left scratching my head because I just banged my head against that game for months and months and months. And I don't think I ever, I never even killed the Grim Reaper when I was a kid. I never even killed the second to last wow. boss. That game used to wow. just abuse me when I was a kid. <laughs> Those and uh, the Super Metroid games I've always been a huge fan of. Uh, I know Metroid, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I know that a Nintendo just announced that uh, there's going to be a little bit of a delay on the fourth one. And people were up in arms about that. Uh, but, you know, honestly, the more time, especially with Nintendo, the better. I mean, they're just gonna just gonna make a better game if you give them more time to do so. Yeah, Super Metroid. My only grievance against it was that it wasn't quite as hard as the first Metroid. Like with the first Metroid, no. it can't like the first bundle of games like you know like Castlevania and Metroid and Legend of Zelda and all that stuff. But Metroid was my favorite of all the original crop of NES games. And then I was probably 16 when I got my hands on Super Metroid. 
And I mm-hmm. loved it. And I played it through many times, but I kind of crushed it in a matter of days. I was like, well, shit. Yeah. I was kind of hoping easier. to get, you know, abused like the first one. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it is easier, but I just love the look of it, too. It's yeah. beautiful. I love, yeah, it's just the, the, the art direction is, is wonderful for that game. And the music's great, too. It's very eerie. And I love watching the four-man speedrun competitions people do now where you have, like, the yes. a, a different screen in each quadrant. And yeah. the, the level of expertise people have with, like, the special moves for shaving down your time just jaw dropping but I go down these YouTube rabbit holes at night while I smoke a little weed get in bed and start watching speed runs of games and I'm just in awe I mean people are in awe of like athletes who can dunk a basketball but like they have no idea how good these people are when they take these games to the ultimate highest level you can take them to they are operating on a level that's very close to genius and it's just incredible yeah especially if you watch those um, Puyo Puyo or Tetris tournaments they're ridiculous I don't know if you've ever watched I just watched watched one recently where someone where the current heavyweight champion got dethroned it gave me anxiety watching it how fast it is yeah it's just i mean i'm not bad at tetris but like i just i can't imagine do playing it that fast I mean, it's just it's just insane it's 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 like it's inhuman almost how fast that they they get through those levels yeah i played it a lot on the original game boy which wasn't even a rear lit screen the original game boy you couldn't play it in the dark it was a screen but you had to play it in the light but tetris was the game that came with it and yes. i had all four of the theme songs memorized uh, i loved them to pieces Oh yeah, they're wonderful. And I'm trying to think. There's also Shenmue Three, I think, which is promised to be this year. I don't know if you're familiar. It was I'm unfamiliar with that franchise. Dreamcast and the original Xbox, and uh, it's like uh, Bloodstained. It's kind of like, oh yes, you know, Ishimura is coming back and making another uh, Castlevania. Um, the idea that uh, I God, I'm probably going to butcher his name, Yu Suzuki, I think, is coming back and doing another Shenmue is, is wonderful. Um, and then there's another Tojam and Earl, which I was a huge fan of of those games on the Sega Genesis, and there was a third one on the original Xbox. And so there's going to be a new game uh, this year from the original creator, um, and it looks like it's one of the original ones. Very similar to maybe the original one. There's there's quite a bit. Like I'm really kind of right now even more interested in like classic games that I'm familiar with, kind of coming back with the original creator. So it's kind of has everything there uh, in terms of its difficulty and its its style. Um, a little more so than I almost am than the AAA stuff. Well, if, some, if somebody wants to hunt you down and talk about pre-code movies and or video games are both at the same time, because it sounds like you spend a lot of time watching old movies and playing video games. I if, do. If somebody wants to talk <laughs> about all that stuff, time. where can people yeah. find you online? Um, on Twitter at WMassLiberty. I'm there like 24-7 and I'll talk gaming and movies of any kind with you anytime, especially if you want to kind of debate me on stuff or you want to And do you do any to... live streams of your gaming or anything like that? I do not. No, I've considered it. But you know what? I kind of I don't really do the speed run thing. And I kind of I, I'm not into like a lot of the um, MMOs or the online first person shooters, which have huge audiences. I'm kind of more into to what I mentioned uh, that we discussed, like the smaller indie stuff um, or, you know, maybe replaying a Gunstar Heroes on the Sega Genesis or, you know, something like that. Like I'm kind of more into. But those if you started things, a YouTube channel where you're uploading videos of you playing these classic games and just showing all the secrets and that sort of thing. Yeah. I promise you people will watch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll consider it. Definitely. Excellent. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down these flicks. And if you're a gamer, hunt down some of these games. And I look forward to hearing your episode on Flixwise Canada in the very oh, near future. You. It should be, uh, should be exciting. But if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Give us a rating review, all that good stuff. If you want to see me ranting and raving about TV shows and movies, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. And you can find my personal profile at Colbrax. But can't thank you enough for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but... Uh... It'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You do.
just put your lips together and blow. 